it's nothing really special. Actually, no, it's actually something very special. Today is our 100th episode special. Everyone get excited. <laughs> what? Hooray! <laughs> I'm so confused. I'm trying to, like, mislead with the intro, but, yeah. yeah. Oh, have, like, <laughs> have it be big and awesome and then... Try and mislead by it not being so awesome. Yeah, like today is just episode one hundred thirty-seven. You know, if B, anyone's B, used to Q. disappointing, I mean, it would be used to. It would be me. That's true. That was everyone. Low. Get excited! It's one hundred. It is. We've been doing this podcast for two years. Two years. So this is both our one hundredth and second second anniversary, starting our third season, as John likes to go by. Yes. Well, actually, it's common for podcasts to be broken into these seasons. They they do that often. At least I'm not going British and say like yes, every, that is true. every, yes, every yeah. eight episodes is a new season or series as they call it. That's true. We actually have like legit seasons, like 52 per season. That's pretty solid. Well, well 50. 50, yeah. Yeah. 50. Our, 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 our 50. two vacations. <laughs> well, technically, technically it should only be about 24, 25 at most until we get syndicated. I like your plan. Yeah. Well, like that's what the YouTube's for. Syndication? Syndication. I would love to get syndication. I would love to get paid. Well... Uh, Take us in, Matt. Well, I'd like to start, actually, with um, the origin of where this all started. But I think a good sense of what we're here and what we do is something you originally wrote for the new revamp of the website. And, I mean, I would like to start with that, actually, because it was the best way, I think, to, in a professional and profound manner, express... Who we are and what we do. Well, it should be said first that this is not uh, a normal podcast. This is... We're not we're going to be reviewing. We're not going to use our giant yes. 100 as an episode review. We're actually going to uh, use this as, an, as a time to explore just a few things about what we've done in the past, what we're doing now, and what we'd like to achieve in the future. So, prepare to get sort of a three-pronged event here, and I'm going to use that by beginning with our mission statement on the front of our website. If you've never read it before, well, here it is now. Crash Chords is a website devoted to expanding how we think about music as an art form. Our goal is to foster an atmosphere of subjective debate in which the relevance of a single note can be argued beside an entire repertoire's sphere of influence. In our site's content, we try to delve into as diverse of a selection of music as possible. We explore the intricacies of composition, the circumstances surrounding a musical work's place in our time, and the broad, ineffable questions that concern how art touches us emotionally. So that's what we're about. If um, you didn't know. Yes, if you hadn't, if you'd ignored the website, ignored the Facebook page, ignored the iTunes, pretty much if you've only discovered us very recently on YouTube and haven't read anything about us, now you know a little more. Um, yeah, th this episode is going to be a little different like our 50th. We, we rather further to the discussion and we'll go back to our regularly scheduled program. Next week with 101, I'll be presenting an album and we'll talk more about that later in the show. Comparable. The 50th was about music as a whole and this is more about us and what as we're trying to do for music as a whole. Uh, us as a whole, not us and our holes. That, I don't think I was implying anything remotely close to that, but if you interpret it from that, well, good for you, well, man. I was, good no, for not you. good for him. <laughs> no, I don't want to know about your dark holes. place. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I thought of that one myself. Yeah. Um, all right, so I want to start with where the origin of Crash Chords comes from. Um, Crash Chords is actually, it started out as a blog role that I had created myself for free on WordPress. My girlfriend at the time, uh, Mary, who's been a guest on the podcast, created a blog called Kiss My Lit for her college course at the time and insisted because I was so into music and it was kind of my lifeblood, which was no secret to anyone at the, that point, that I make a blog about uh, music. And for me, it was kind of, 
I don't know. I was like, I don't know anything about blogging. I don't even have a Tumblr. Like, I don't... It, I don't... Was, in, it was impromptu. Yeah. Essentially. But I was like, what the hell? It can't hurt. So I figured I'd create one. Um, I do have to credit someone who I don't know that I've credited on the air for the idea of the title. I came up with the title myself, but I couldn't think of a title for the blog. So I'd asked Pete, a mutual friend of all of us, um, who we've mentioned before, what should I name it? And he said, well, alliteration is always great. It, it's catchy, and a lot of people remember it. And that's kind of for, for been the foregone conclusion for a lot of the title themes that I've come up with as well. For and articles name has come to have even more meaning as the years have gone on, yes. <laughs> considering what we do. But Crash Chords, the title came up because I was trying to think of something clever wordplay and have alliteration. And so I know chords, you know, have a double meaning. Physical chords, like a clothesline you would hang clothes from, and then musical chords, which is the chords we are insisting of. That's what uh, it was at the time, and now we're about actually breaking the chords apart and yes. crashing them. <laughs> yeah, and so that's where the 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 blog started in the title, um, and it was mostly just posting articles, the song shots, and stuff that still prevail to this day. But no thoughts of a podcast at the time. I been listening to podcasts, but kind of didn't really think it would be possible to record anything. And this is circa twenty ten. Yes, we've been around for four years now. It was three years. Wow, it's already four years. That's scary yes march of this year it became four years so two years of a non-podcast crash chords yes um i mostly wrote articles i was writing on my own for a while i'd spoken to john a little bit about writing stuff but he hadn't really started writing anything yet at that point um and then i would always talk about how i'd want to do a podcast as i started to get into nerdist more which was the podcast progenitor chris hardwick is like my podcast and website father and mentor only because the Nerdist also started out as a podcast and a blog, and he built it out into a multimedia site. And his re fairly recent, within the last couple of years, um, self-help book that he wrote, which was also auto somewhat autobiographical, kind of really inspired me to push harder with it. But, you know, I modeled a lot of the basic early ideas off of what he had done because he had kind of pushed podcasting to the next level. Though we did get rid of a couple of those early ideas. Yes. <laughs> um, but I would always kvetch to John about how I really want to do a podcast and but never really did anything about it and John essentially at one point pushed me to do it okay I've known Matt for what is it like going on a decade at least now. at least uh, we've been very tight for that whole time and I met I knew I've known you Steve for you knew of me I knew of you yeah. for for years for like two three years yeah, prior to us doing this you were an entity somewhere in my yeah yeah my Mostly, we, it was like friends of friends. The Venn diagrams would put us together. Um, but like for like two months, Matt was having issues with what he would put on the podcast. And I think at that point, I had actually helped out on a, one or two articles. But I got so tired of his complaining, I want to do a podcast, I want to do a podcast, that like one day, it was, it was a Sunday or something like that, we were hanging out. I was like, just stop. Call up Steve. Get him over here. We're doing this next week. So next week, everybody showed up, and we had a little That's... iPad, and we're recording on a little stupid little iPad that I'm pretty sure we probably should have flipped it around the other way, so that the speaker was actually facing us, because I think it was facing the table. Yeah, there's a lot of things we should have done. <laughs> there's a know? lot of things we did wrong. And this, of year. course, this following week was episode number one, which the format is completely different yeah. than what it was, but now. And it brings me to me, I mean, I was still in, in, in college. This was my first semester out of college at the time. 
and which is I why was, which is I why, was yeah that's why I was studying music so yeah and that's, was, that's why he was float that's why Matt was floating your name because he knew you were a music yeah. guy I was not affiliated with Crash Chords at all at the time I was still trying to focus on my own music career trying to get a degree for one thing figure out what branch of music I was going to be in and I finally settled on composition which inevitably led me to look really really critically at a lot of pieces considering I had to suddenly look so critically at my own and so this seemed very very natural that as we developed a format where we would just review albums primarily and then also talk about other aspects of music as a whole it seemed very natural that we would go very very deeply into each album and it progressed as it went on, and that's where you come today. Three-hour-long podcasts largely encompassing album reviews. Excruciatingly detailed album reviews. Which we assume is why you're here. Um, yeah, and I'd known Steve. I'd gotten close with Steve um, through Mary. And so I knew I knew he was a talented musician. I had heard a piece that I referred to many times on the podcast called Think Thing that he had wrote, this long ragtime piece that I was a fan of. So I was like, well, if he can write music, he must know something about it. Um, because I didn't, I knew your degree was in music, but I had no idea what specifically. Um, and yeah, we started recording then and have not stopped since with minor breaks due to hurricanes, Jewish holidays and sickness. Beyond that, we have never stopped. Um, and honestly, it, through my whole life in the last two years, it's the only constant reliable until very recently at least at least within that year the first year we started it was the through line for that year for me it was something consistent that i always looked forward to that i was never depressed about there were nights where i may not have been in the mood to do it because of what happened during the day but it was the solid through line and well this is a thing that i know i'm going to do every week well they have little rules about people who want to start podcasts and things like that not things that we ever looked at at the time but it's funny actually to look on it retrospectively about how you have to get past the first the first 9 the first 9 episodes is really when you're going to you're going to know that you're going to stick to it and then the next 17 is when you really know that you're going to stick to it and apparently those are the, those are just commonly known as like the two delineating marks between, you know, podcasts that go by the wayside and podcasts that are for all intents and purposes around for the long haul. I like to think we passed that mark. I think it's safe to say that we have. I never thought we would stop. From episode one, I never thought we would stop. I had doubts. I, I, I'm going to flat out say that I had my doubts as, as a... Um, I mean, as a graduating musician who didn't know what he wanted to do with his life at the time, and still, you know, there's areas that I have to figure out, but, you know, there's a podcast seemed to, at the time to be a little bit of something that was, that I was standing on a pedestal, and you had to come at it from multiple angles, that you're not really on a pedestal when you're on a podcast, that is still, it's still a podium per se, but it's not something that is so highfalutin that it's above the common man. I'm not speaking from years of experience here. I'm speaking from the same experience that many listeners or many people coming to us are still coming there with. But the idea is that we stuck to it. And now that we've stuck to it, you know, we try to impart what we can and we try to encourage other people to do the same thing. I'll openly admit that I didn't ever had doubts. Once we were at the podcast phase, I never really had any doubts. I did, however, in the beginning with the website, have doubts. Um, I did two articles in March and then fell off the map for a month. And I was trying to post every couple days. And I posted two weeks in a row and then f disappeared and did a short article reintroducing myself uh, when I continued to post from. This is an old article. This is from 
April 9th of 2010. The title is called Era 404, Music Not Found. Hey all, I know I've been, hey all, I know I've fallen off the map a bit. I was in the middle of moving and had no internet until now. I'm seeing Blocktober Saturday, and you can expect to post about that show the night following or in the morning. And then I did write an art- a lengthy article about that show that we saw and continued to post since so then. that's sort of the caliber of the stop-start nature that was the, the website at that time. In the beginning. And then yeah. from then on, I was fairly consistent. And actually, John, shortly after there, wrote his first article for me called Desertion Politics, which was within that first year. It wasn't desertion. Dissertation. 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 Words, they're hard. The you know, I, I, of, I would not, that, I would I not have trouble believing that you would write a, an article called Disserting Politics. Yes. <laughs> Be quiet, you. No, I wanted to speak, and I think this, that article actually does explain a lot of why I'm, I'm, I do this podcast, which is I love discussing music. And if you guys go back and read the first thing I ever posted on the website, I'm discussing the idea of, of politics and music. And how different bands have approached it, and how different uh, musical styles have in, inspired movements, and vice versa. And there's a lot to it. I love talking about how music is used, and how music is is created, and all the little tidbits that go into it. But most importantly, I'm I love the way that people shape music to themselves. Not how they actually create the music, but how they take this idea and, and take it as part of themselves and actually shape their life around it and vice versa, shape it to their lives. Because that's what I really think uh, music is. It's Music is not an art form in and of itself. Uh, because it's such a, a temporal idea, you cannot listen to music with a glance. You have to actually experience a piece over time. And this is something I've harped on in the past. Music is a tool because of that. Uh, as much as it is an aspect of art, because it shapes a feeling or an emotion or an event or just time itself, it's so interesting the way people use it and the way you can discuss it. Because it's not like you have a painting where you can just easily reference well, in this little area, he used this brush strokes. You can see it all at once, and maybe you'll pick out things over the years of close study, but music is something that, because it's always history, and always something that you're looking to the past to discuss, even if you just listen to it, it's always something in the past, it's always being shaped differently. And that's one of my favorite aspects of music. I think that's a great way to put it. And, I, and there's a lot of crossover of for me personally, with, with a lot of what you said there. Um, I, w- I will add uh, another reason of why I, I really ended up sticking to this podcast. And I think that apart from j- just about everything you said, which obviously was a prerequisite for me and my love for music and why I, I, I chose to create music and all of that, um, is, is the way in which people really just discuss music, period. The way they... they judge or criticize music you know a lot of times it, it, it walks down kind of a shaky ground because it is an art form and I once had a, a great discussion even before this pod, uh, this podcast took place really right at the end of of college which for me was just a couple months prior to us actually beginning this which was on on how we treat music how we treat art itself and can there be such a thing as bad art when art is m- just the creation of something from someone's mind, just pulling from the realm of ideas and handing it on a platter to everyone else? 
how can you possibly say that that thing is good or bad? Because it's it's their idea, and it was special to them. And in the end, it, it really is just a matter of whether it has to cross over to someone else, if they happen to cross paths with the same exact thing as them. So, that leads me to the podcast. We decided we were going to do album reviews, and I had to think of what caliber are we going to do this? Are we going to be sort of a Rolling Stone type of atmosphere? Are we going to, to give, like, taglines and then just sort of leave it at that? Are we going to give an overall impression of an album? Well, that's the kind of thing that you can write down. But it made me think, how can you talk about an album at length and then expect people to follow this when they can't even listen to the music themselves? At first, this was sort of a scary notion to me until I realized that is exactly what makes it sort of unique. Is because if you know an album well, and if you care about an album, if you care about music as a whole, then these things will, will stay with you. And you will cross-check, you will compare, you will cross-reference. This is the kind of stuff that involves, that, that is involved with, with a really careful critique. With uh, an analytical mind, as I like to put it. And that's very important. Based on furthering music, furthering your own artistic sensibilities... It's important for all of us as a culture to sort of raise our standards a little bit. And I think that's why I decided we really need to go deep into this. We can't just leave it at these, at these quotes and then call it a day or slap on a rating and then call it a day. We do all this stuff too, but I like the fact that we go into each and every track by detail and really explore all the intricacies that we're going to explore later in, in this episode right here and sort of give our listeners an overview of the stuff that we talk about every week but on a more general sense, because this is what we, we think about, and we hope you do too. Um, yeah, and the thing is really about that in particular is we could have gone the more general route and kept it very kind of candy-coated, oh, it's good, it's bad, or I don't know. But with the advent of something like Spotify, which allowed us to actually link whole playlists... And let you and, listen to our complaints. And so we could tell you track by track what song we're listening to, you know, and give you that reference to listen to it and come back to us really also helped the podcast. Once we figured that out, it kind of pulled things together. And we understood from the get-go that it is it is a task, it is a chore. But again, for for the type of person that's really into this stuff, we don't think it's going to well, be that hard. It might be sort of an exciting event. And, of course, we always encourage feedback whenever possible. Well, the reality of the this kind of a podcast that we're working on is if you don't want to go through the painstaking detail of... Following we're, it? We're probably not for you. Yeah, I mean, you know what? If if you came to our podcast because you like Lewis Logic and you wanted to hear our interview with him, great, and I hope you enjoyed it. And I have no problem with that. But that's what those episodes are for as well as our other episodes. It's the idea of bringing people in. The, and maybe you came in because you just wanted to hear Lewis Logic yap on about a great college experience or, and, and the ridiculous or way his career... Or that epic story. Right. Really we we tried to be but, diverse with all that. Yeah. But if you stay and, you know, if you stayed and listened for the whole thing leading up to it, then we're thankful for that too. And that brings me to the point well, I, I wanted to make... I would liken it, first of all, to an episode of like, to a session of watching an episode of the McLaughlin Group or something like that. If you're not that into politics, well then that's probably not for you because that involves a lot of, a lot of big shots in the industry talking about you know, the events of the day, having done their homework, they expect you to have done your homework too, so that you can forge your own opinions, and then have an opinion on that. So that's how it works with politics, how come that's not how it should work with art, with art, because, which is equally as competitive. And important. Yes. Um, but that brings me to the listeners, and 
there are a lot of whys I do this, why I created the website, why I do the podcast, why I even listen to music. But ultimately, at this point, I can safely say, because I know you're out there, we have the views to say so, that I do this for the listeners. I, I, the thing I like most about music is sharing it. As, as important as, it, as music is in my life, and it saved me from really dark times and got me through a lot of the hardest parts of my life and how it's my number one stress relief, relaxation and hobby, you know, is listening to music. I'll listen to music the way people will listen to, will read a book or watch TV or play a video game. I would choose to just sit in front of my computer, listen to music. But the, the biggest thrill in my life is when I share an album with someone and then they tell me they love it. Because even sharing music one person at a time, to me, feels like a service. And truthfully, the reason that you might notice I've stepped up my game on the Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr about posting music, posting songs, sharing stuff from the indie Spotify page, which followed us recently on Tumblr, Spotify's indie page, um, is, <laughs> is the fact that even if I only get one new person into music a day, a week, that's one more person who likes a thing that they might not have liked before and not known about before. No, I agree with that in terms of uh, that in terms of that service of sharing things, which is why when you look back at these episodes, I at least try to to always sort of explain where I where I came upon my choices, my albums mm-hmm. of the week. Whenever I pick them, I try to explain who who introduced me to this band, or maybe I came across it myself. But especially if it was introduced to me, I try to refer the person because even in cases where it's a person I don't even talk to anymore, often that was a, one of the greatest services for me, and it's it's how I define the person, it's how I define their personality, and so forth. Music has all of, all of these capabilities. I think that's a very powerful thing for a genre. Yeah, and for for me Medium. also. Truthfully, my dream for this website and this podcast, there are a lot of them, but the number one for me is to be a source of information that people trust to get music. That's what I want to be. I want to. I want someone to pull up the Crash Course Twitter, look at what I was listening to today, since I'm mostly the one who posts lately, and say, oh, Crash Course is listening to St. Vincent. Well, you know, they're a trusted music source. I should listen to St. Vincent. The one, the minute we can start accomplishing that, that's where the dream of this website and it taking off is really big for me. You know, there are a lot of things. And same with the podcast. Oh, they le- reviewed the latest Beyonce album. Well, I trust their opinions. And even though they don't always talk highly about pop music, I want to hear what they had to say about Beyonce. And maybe I'll go buy it based on their opinion. I mean, if we, if we help promote, help people navigate the musical landscape by just our opinion and, and, and thoughts alone, whether they agree or disagree. If we push people to go buy the record because we said not to. Because, and... of course, there's dissension among us as well. So, right. you know, it's all about whether who you cross paths with at that time, which is why I, I, I'll, I'll one-up you just on that on that, um, on that point. And that's to say that I wouldn't just like to, to be a service to share music to other people, but also as a more interactive service to sort of engage in the discussion, yes. which I think is, is, is equally as important than, sure. than the sharing part. Well, and that's one step that can lead to another, yeah. which because is absolutely right. That can lead to the sharing of genres and whatnot, or you know, maybe even the, uh, the expansion of genres. Right, well, and also, truthfully, my goal from an emotional standpoint is to get people to explore within themselves what you know, sort of self-exploration of what you want from music, what you that, want I think from is, this podcast. That, the ultimate thing. Yeah. It's, it's not so questions. much us telling you what to think. It's, a, it's 
encouraging you to think more about what you think. I mean, I always I always listen to music analytically, but I don't think I always knew I did. Like, I did it, naturally. But now I even notice things that I don't know that I would have noticed ages ago listening to music because I've fine-tuned my analytical mind. There's many levels of analysis, I think. You know, there's kind of like water cooler analysis. Like, hey, did you listen to the latest Katy Perry album? You know, it might come across. Incidentally, we did do the latest Katy that Perry album. That was way too masculine for the latest Katy Perry album. <laughs> I that... shot out an artist. That's what I did. <laughs> like, oh my god, you could have gone so many different ways with that. It was... It was uninspiring. Well, I think that's a, a stereotypical attribution yeah, of the actually. Katy Perry fan group. Yeah, actually. Since I know a lot of guys who actually are quite fond of her. Straight guys. Actually. Well, she is very pretty. <laughs> it's not just about that either, but okay. <laughs> but no, anyway. that's, that's what it comes down to, really. No, absolutely. And I just, you know, I'm really thankful that we do this every week. I'm thankful that you guys still want to do it every week. Um, I'll admit that not everything has gone exactly as I wanted over the last two years. I wish I was more active about writing. I wish I would, you know, not need someone else's deadline from a sister website that, well, not sister website, but a partner website that I'm writing for as well to have hard deadlines for them just to have articles for us. I'd like to be inspired to write for our own site too originally, which I'm working on and we're all working on. But I have to say that I couldn't have asked for anything more from this podcast, how it's grown and how the website's grown. And one well, thing, we're a small, closed group, you know. And, and that's something that I don't think. I, I, the, we do two hours a week. Most people don't realize that that two hours a week of production is somewhere in the neighborhood of what? About eight hours each, give or take? A lot goes into it. Of work? A lot goes into it. The self listens along the week ourselves, separately, before we convene prior to the podcast hours before the podcast to listen to the album together to sort of merge our notes and, and establish some sort of direction for how our discussion is going to take place, uh, which brings me back to those levels of analysis again. Uh, I said, again, we, we obviously strive beyond the water cooler analysis, and that's because we look at the individual uh, facets of music, which I think it's about time we, 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 take some, we take a little bit of a breather to explore. Because we've never quite explored all of the facets of music. It, it comes up organically, of course, as we yes. do these album discussions. And, and our but I'd like, to, I'd like to really hone in on those, on those facets. It's, uh, the reason we chose so many categories for our more recent end of year, as opposed to the uh, 25th-ish episode, 25, 26, 25? 25. 25, um, was that we realized from our first inception, we, we kind of looked at music and was like, that's good. That's bad, and that's kind of where we left it in those first it was two a dozen episodes. Yeah. Of, yeah, that's the levels of analysis. It, and it moves up. Our most recent one, we had in the neighborhood of two dozen categories: the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because we realized there's so many different aspects we try to cover when we're talking about music, and some of these things don't even apply to certain bands we've done, certain albums we've done. Uh, because, well, some bands don't have any vocal work whatsoever, so you can't talk vocals, you can't talk lyrics. It becomes difficult to talk about things like theme. Exactly. So it's a very challenging... Uh, I mean, considering that week to week that stuff does change, it becomes challenging to us because we can't merely rate on the same levels. We need to look at the art form for what it is, sometimes what it lacks, sometimes what it gives in, in excess. Right, and one of the most fluctuating things that we talk about on a week-to-week -week basis almost constantly 
is the genre of music we listen to in the first place. I mean, that just based on three hosts choosing a different album each week and also incorporating a guest a month, which has been consistent for this year at least, who also brings their own album, which might not be in any of our tastes. We, we cover a wide variety of genres. And I think it's important that we actually do that because in the beginning we did kind of stick to just what we liked. What mm-hmm. we liked. The stuff we liked. Well, it was easier to talk right, about. Right, in the beginning. and But, you know, the idea that I think... Genre plays an important role in the selection process, either because it gives us a heads up of what to expect on a stereotypical level, but also it can also surprise us and propel the conversation because we get the opposite of what we expect based on the genre it's mm-hmm. in. And that's I, indeed why the first facet of this discussion here is genre. It is it's the, the super category by which to uh, by which to judge. A lot of people can walk into something thinking. You know that genre is such. I will avoid it, or I will I will wholeheartedly accept it. You know, and I think that's why that's important for the artist too, because of the artist's decision to, for instance, put themselves in one genre or another. And this is not always the case. Many many artists like to go out there and say, "Well, I'm going to be me. I'm gonna I'm gonna do me right now." And you can't put me in a box, man. That's just not the way I go. But inevitably, it does happen. A lot of times, it happens because. The artist has their own set of influences, and sometimes you just can't avoid them. If you have a preference toward a certain a certain influence, a certain uh, category, then your music style a lot of times will reflect that. A lot of times it won't, but you have to figure out exactly how you're going to package and sell that to the public, especially if you're handing them something that's already been done before. That can be a little bit dicey. So this is why it's a very important uh, first facet to discuss here. It's also... When you start talking genre, you say something like punk indie, or you say classic rock, or you say techno, electronica, monstrosity, death metal, blah, 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 blah. You're already creating a first impression without even listening to the music. The cover of the book, essentially. Yeah, and when we look at it, if I see something like noise rock, I'm going to know what to expect. And that actually is is a two-edged blade here because, yeah, it gives you some preconceived conceptions i mean you already know i know uh same word to define itself um but it also gives you more than just what to expect it allows you to get a framework of discovering what you don't expect in this genre if you get a punk rocker who starts throwing in jazz i mean this is somebody doing something different you get somebody doing folk music with a dash of electronica this is when you start doing one of our favorite words, fusion genres. We love things that mesh old with new or new with new or old with old, just blending it together. It's a chance creating... for individualism. Exactly. And that's why whenever we say what album we're doing for next week, one of the few things that we always mention is genre. Always. I mean, we'll say this is going to be math rock. This is going to be indie. This, I mm-hmm. think, is a noise rock because, conglomerate. Because it's... We would be we would do an injustice if we did anything else. That's the way the music was packaged and sold to us. So that's how we kind of have to package and sell it to you. It's it's not that that needs to be the end of the discussion, but there was a there was a concerted effort to to make that choice in the beginning. You can't ignore it once it's out. But I don't always think that the artist is choosing the genre they're in. Oh, for sure. I a think lot of that a lot label. of well, I think a, not even that. I think a lot of the time it's the. I call it the J. Jonah Jameson theory. Or the retailer. 
the J. Jonah Jameson theory, yes, like the retailer, in Spider-Man, at least in the movies, and I, I think in the comic books too, when there was a new villain, he'd say, oh, well, it's the Green Goblin, you know, giving it a label based on its purely stereotypical attributes. And I find and yeah. feel that most music does the same thing. It's not the artist or maybe even the record label that's choosing the genre. It's the packager. It's, you know, the either the retail store, the magazine, the news source. They put it in a box. I find it's about 50-50. And, of course, that's an arbitrary uh, percentage because I yeah. can't possibly tally up all this stuff. But well, my own personal experience, this has been about 50-50. 50% of artists... Are, are actively trying to pursue their genre and be the best of their oh, genre. Yeah. Well, a great they, example they, of that they, is... They have a passion about that genre, and you can't, you can't hide that passion. Well, In great... which case, they don't mind their label whatsoever. It helps them. That best example is the king of pop. Michael Jackson gave himself that title because he thought he was the king of all that pop could offer, and for a while, he was, you know... Exactly. You, 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 you embrace... Once you have a, a, a niche... You can either defy it and spend your career defying it mm. or embrace it and move with it. And you can find your stride that, that way. That example in itself is pretty fascinating considering that pop is really just an amalgam of, of whatever Multiple interests genres. people are into at that day. And for Michael Jackson, that incorporated things like funk, which was very popular. Um, uh, I believe it was Off the Wall. That yeah. album was a lot had much more of a disco twist to it. All these different conglomerations were just thrown into his style and in the end people really did think of that style as just quintessential Michael Jackson so yeah. that's just that strange thing you can you can work if you uh, if, if you're I guess decisive enough and I, and I feel like also the genrefication of stuff really helps us to wake up when we're reviewing the fact that we go into a review either with prejudice or without prejudice can affect our our interpretation of it, but also enhance it. Because if we're expecting X and we get Y, that mm. can really shock our system and really get us thinking and working harder. That's true, because that's actually something that for for a lot of people, genres are not a bad thing. They're a good thing that helps them navigate the, the annals of music, which by this point are pretty damn extensive. I mean, if, if you really didn't have any kind of label, then you'd sort of be lost in a sea of everything. So a lot of times it's very easy to criticize genre because of how it places things in boxes that would otherwise maybe have made it to the top if they weren't so stereotyped. But again, this is all conjecture. We don't know any of that. But what we do know is that people can guide themselves, and we it, it's good to have sort of a Dewey Decimal system in place to help them do that. Yeah, but I would like something less confusing than this Dewey Decimal system that we have going here. That's my biggest issue with the genre <laughs> well, labeling. Well, now people like slashes and hyphens. and. Well, uh, that's the well, problem. No, that's... Is it's not just the industry making the genres anymore. It's everybody. Yeah, but here's the whole thing. Yeah. Everybody making these slash genres, these subgenres, or these conglomerate genres really are making multi-genre or pan-genre pieces. When I said that monstrosity earlier, I mean, this is stuff that is done. Yeah. Having electronica death metal indie pop, I mean, this is not... Granted, that might be very, very, very specific, but I do know of one band out in freaking Japan that is making death metal pop. But see, now, even that can sometimes be a concerted effort. Well, where do you put it, times. though? Is it a death metal? Is it a pop? Where do I... 
catalog it in the in Barnes and Noble. Well, it depends. I mean, I can't say speak to that example uh, per se, but I know there's many cases where you know, for instance, uh, Serge Tankin wanted to do a jazz album. Now, every, he knows what his label is, but he decided, no, I'm going to do a jazz album and shift it over. But of course, it's still going to have his own little twist. So that's the kind of thing that almost does need a hyphen. And because his mark is is one unto himself that could be considered Serge Tankin hyphen jazz, because you know you're going to get his spin on an otherwise familiar genre. That's something that's decided by the artist at that point. I mean, if you're going to use your influences actively, then you don't always have to hide them in your own style. Sometimes you can just shift the direction of a particular song or a particular album and just say, no, we're going to pull this little 180 on you and just see what you think. But genre still does an excellent job of labeling individuals. When I was looking to do something wow and to really mess with Steve to get, give him something I know he hasn't heard before, I decided, well, let me go through my catalog and go to Math Rock because it's been a while since I heard Math Rock. And that's what brought us Marnie Stern. And it's definitely a genre that I had not really come across. Fun fact I learned today on the Epic Podcast, Schaefer used to play drums in a Math Rock band. Oh, I'm going to have to look them up. That is so random. Yes. Yep. Anyway. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but Marnie Stern is a great example of how genre can define instrumentation. If you want to have those kind of tappy, tappy, tapparoo chords, the, the, the speed guitar and the very unique sound of math rock, well, you kind of got to go to math rock. And that's another thing that is a, a major judgment point for us. What is being used and how it's being used. Well, this Instrumentally. is why we like to argue this stuff. For instance, even while you were saying that, I, I am on the fringe of, of, of arguing that, that that style is something that I wouldn't have attributed to math rock based on my idea of other genres. Granted, I didn't know a lot about math rock particularly, but I know, for instance, Prague has a tendency to do something very, very similar. In which case, I would have said, well, that falls under progressive. So now you're talking about a genre that that walks a very, very fine line, or perhaps an incredibly gray line as to whether someone perceives it as one or the other. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's also instrument, a genre can be influenced by personal knowledge and personal tastes and personal impressions. What one person may view as strictly pop, you may be more inclined to break down as more than just pop. Right. Like, but, but wouldn't you say... We have bands like we we did uh, quite some time ago. I couldn't tell you when. Circle in the Square by Flowbots. What episode? Mm-hmm. Episode ten. Episode ten. One of my favorite albums of that year, and still a love of mine. It's they they build themselves as an indie, hip hop rock band. Yet for all that, it gives no information as to why a violinist is their lead guitarist, and to have such a random. Uh, replacement or random in the sense of what would you think would be your your lead rocker and this this is what i think is moving on to the to the second uh main bullet mark on our list the second thing that we look at a lot because i think it 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 is so tied to genre in, in many ways and that's instrumentation so an example like what you just mentioned when a violinist is thrown in there connotations immediately come to mind Con- connotations based on instrumentation will lead you to a certain genre for instance, we think of strings as being inherently classical, just because the, such a massive majority of, the, of that, that repertoire exist, um, consisted of string music. It was just one of the most popular things, one of the most available instruments. 
um, very and, easy to maintain, very easy to, uh, to to collaborate with and have a chamber ensemble with and orchestrate. And yet two bands that we've listened to that have nothing to do with classical both Decide have violins in them. To feature the instrument, exactly. Right. Blocktober and Flobots both have violins in them. One's alt-pop or, or, or like a pop-rock band. The other is hip-hop, hip-hop and rock. Now, I speculate that based on these the, these instrumental choices, you could take it from maybe three angles uh, in terms of the, the artist's reason for having it. One is, of course, the obvious and probably the more commonly the answer, and that is just the sonic resonance of that instrument. Yeah. They like it. If they like it, it, it has multiple uses, and they're trying to actually defy its stereotype as a genre. Like, oh, that's always used for classical genre, and that's, I mean, for classical music, for romantic type. That's just, that's not where we're going with this. Granted, though, the instrument itself carries an edge that is used by both genres. It's romantic flair. I know many people, many people, myself included, who would throw in the violin as probably one of the most romantic instruments because I of the way it agree swells. Wholeheartedly, I mean, yeah. it's 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 amazing how many people I come across who have this this exact same claim. Some may disagree, but <laughs> it's pretty widespread. So there's that inherent use to it, right? And obviously, romantic era classical music used it to that same effect. There's many great, uh, many great arias that use the violins in the background, or, for instance, instrumental music that just uses the violin as the primary soloist because it so resembles a human voice and ha is in the same register. But then you switch over to these other genres, like, for instance, hip-hop. Well, why do they want to throw it in? Because they're trying to add the same element to their genre. Maybe, maybe they feel that uh, they can't achieve the same romance with hip-hop in its traditional instrumentation, which, to be frank, a lot of times is just a beatbox, or backup singers, or a, a drum machine. I mean, a lot of times there's very little instrumentation to go with hip-hop because it's so based on the rhythm and the vocalist. If they don't feel they can achieve a romantic edge with that, they might throw in the violin for the same exact reason, in which case they're defying genre by looking more closely at the uses of the instrument. Right, and that's why also they're two of the more emotional bands we've listened to. Blocktober went the more the route of heartbreak and loss in a lot of their songs, whereas Flowbots go more in the defying the authority passion route. But both are very romantic, passionate feelings, and the violin best helps define them. There's plenty of other uh, albums that we did that, that achieved the same thing. Sure. I thought Arc Iris, for instance, he, she had amazing uh, use of of the violin and the cello also of which course. is very closely tied it just has a, a more a more rugged edge to it but the same romance for me is personally there with the cello sure it's just those are the two that i thought of yeah. there are others of course um i would argue that any any album that we've listened to that had the violin probably used it at least at some point if not exclusively as a romantic type it's um not always true of course that's one reason why we actually have two different names for the same instrument, and that's the violin and the fiddle. Because then when we go up over to, uh, over to various country forms, various folk forms, which I think we've also broached in the past, then you're looking at a completely different use. At that point, it's not romantic, right? But it's just so strange that it's either one or the other, and you call them two different things because the uses are so different. On one hand, the style of play is different, and then too. on the other hand, romance, yeah. Or... Uh, upright bass and cello. In what ways? Uh, they're well, not... different different facets of, of 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 lower resonance. I mean, the upright bass I think has uh, 
at least when played, it's more of a driving thing rather than a melodic thing. But they're extremely, extremely similar instruments. They can be if if the upright bass is played in a, in a high range or the cello in a low range. It just happens to be that the cello has such a wide range to it that a lot of times they can get confused. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's some crossover we've, there. We've had that confusion on, on the podcast. Yeah. We're not quite sure if it's one or the other or third or fourth. Uh, that's, that's another thing I like about different instrumentation is the replication of different sounds outside what you would consider normal quote for yeah. an instrument um what an instrument that's actually one of my going, favorite things also where we're going is that is that a trumpet a trombone or what type of a horn is that or is is that a bass is he using an upright is that a standard for instance electric? when you apply apply things like all of the creative things that come out of you know the i i would attribute a lot of, a lot of it to uh 20th century technological uh applications um, a lot of that has come from electric instruments. A lot of it has come from uh, from just the synthesizer. Odd u- well, yeah, you know, definitely. That, that was I was gonna save that for last, but yeah. definitely that. And then also just uh, creative ways, yeah, of using instruments that wouldn't otherwise be thought of. For instance, the whole prepared piano or thing. created instruments, right? Well, I... Or created like Chad Vangelin did. Yeah. Well, I was gonna suggest things like you know prepared piano when you're actually putting things on the strings in the back. That place, that forbidden place that you're not supposed to touch. No, just stay at the keys. Not these people. They go straight for the the gizzard because that's where the the innards are. So why not play around with it? Put a metal plank across like you know, 18 different strings and just see what it does. Probably going to give you an eeriness that the piano could never achieve before. Fascinating. Well, yeah, I mean, honestly, one of the defining moments on the podcast that we've done in the last two years, as far as instrumentation goes, because the minute we first heard the first 10 seconds of this song, our mouths were all agape. And that's the instrumentation in Darlings of Lumberland. I was waiting for you to Darlings say of Lumberland. Darlings of Lumberland is the pinnacle of why we focus on instrumentation. As that's, far as... They might be giants back in episode 38. <laughs> they took something. They, they're a band who've done so many different varieties of genres based within this kind of folky, you know, comedy kind of band they've created. It started out as something I would more, more liken to New Wave. But they... We're listening to an uh, an album that really didn't have, have anything like Darlings, and then we got to Darlings, and all of us were speechless, which was a first on the podcast. And it was purely just because of the the woodwinds and the beginning sounds and this little bit of horns I think they it's had. Also because of the fact that we, I mean, that's not necessarily you know that those instruments are foreign, but it's that it was foreign How to that th- album. Well, that album, foreign, had, foreign to that that album. album had been a rock album up until that point, and then even... all of a sudden there is an ensemble. Now that's that that is asking a lot, almost like what you suggested earlier on when we were talking about genre. Well, that's doing a one eighty on you—the kind of thing that can be a little bit risky if you uh, don't know your 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 fans' preferences, or if you think they're going to be very very rigid and not so flighty with their interests. But you know. They might be giants is the perfect candidate for getting away with something like that because they tend to do something a little bit off the wall in every one of their albums. And they also did something with those instruments that they don't normally do. They mingled them in a way that made these kooky and strange sound combinations that really worked for the rhythm but were also very unique to that album. I've not heard anything like that since or before with those instruments in that arrangement. It's a very unique soul and structure to that song. I mean, the way those instruments were structured together and the way the way it was edited, because I imagine it wasn't all in one take, 
really created a structure for that song and that album that was unique to anything we had heard before or after. Yeah. Uh, you could even argue that They Might Be Giants had very little structure on that album. I don't. I wouldn't call any two songs on that album the same specific genre outside of just putting it on the pantheon of rock. I keep wanting to hark back to New Wave, but again, it's it, New Wave has really no meaning anymore. It was a very period They're thing. just rock. Yeah. Well, New Wave was the, just rock, I think, for its time in the 80s. But, yeah. They were a little out there. <laughs> just, but, just wanted to bring that up. I'll agree with you. But, but essentially the point I'm trying to make is not only is the genre and instrumentation important, but how you structure the instruments you're using and the song itself they're contained within really can hugely impact. Because we often talk about how when exactly. someone does something... Well, here, here's an example of why I think structure is so important. Not that you guys are going to disagree. How often do we listen to a song and go, oh, that was good, but then they screwed it up? Or, like with that one Matchbox 20 song that I will never remember the name of because every time I bring up the story, I can't remember the song, where we listen to their new record and we go... Oh, when are they going to come in and ruin it? Uh, oh, wait, they kept it acoustic the whole time. Oh, this was great. <laughs> oh, they didn't ruin it. It's because of the structure, then the cliches within structures of especially pop music, but in other places as well, we've come to almost predict where songs go, and then we're either surprised or horribly well, disappointed. Structure is also the, the thing where you get a chance to break free from the inherent cliches that are in those first two things we talked about. Genre is the massive cliche, you know, where, which you can fall onto and then bam you're just one of the masses second thing is instrumentation people hear that instrument and they might like it or hate it again it has that fine quality to it that people might either detest or not and then you move towards structure where you're actually putting your song together and then it's more of the experience as it goes that's the thing that can actually change minds in my opinion that's the thing that can actually pull you free granted structure has its tropes as well as you just said pop is is the the classic pop structure which is verse chorus verse chorus you know maybe a bridge and then an intro and an outro and that's basically all you're going to get perhaps a solo that's about one of the simplest that we encounter in in modern music and let's face it it there's a limitation to it granted there's a lot you can do with that and the instrumentation can help various other points uh, that we'll attend to later on can help but it, it's problematic when you're in that structure, but if you just break free even just a little bit, it's amazing how the, how our threshold, I think, a present day listeners' threshold for, for something new and 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 bold really is. It's that threshold. It, it's not too. It, you don't have to go too far to achieve that because people are so familiar with that classic structure. You could just go a little bit beyond that. You could just shuffle things around just a bit. And believe it or not, that will impress people. That's not always saying something great for people because that means we are really, really rigid with what we've actually established. But, you know what? Take advantage. That's all I'm saying. Which is why, to me, a lot of times it is a bit of a cop-out when you stay within the classic structure. It's just so known. And that was actually one of our, one of our early favorites, collectively, was um, uh, Affection. Yeah. This is a song that we talked about for a better part of a year, even though we kind of stopped talking about it, or we're supposed to, after that, that first 25-week uh, year in review. That was off of All American Rejects? All yes, American it was Rejects. the, final, uh, the Kids second in the, last Kids track, in the Street, episode 8. It did... It, it, it completely broke free, and it was on a solid album to begin with, but it, it completely broke free of the entire genre 
that that album was based upon and just just ignored all structure and what it was doing and instead just presented itself as is it's still one of my favorite songs we've ever reviewed i still love that song because it's it's not just a verse chorus verse chorus it's waves it's crests it just rises up when it needs Actually, to and comes back down when it needs to. I would argue that that song really did have a classic structure to it. Granted, it did a lot more with it, and that's what we're going to get to in a, in a little bit, the other facets. But but that that song actually was, in terms of the structure that we're talking about, and maybe there's a bit, bit of a, uh, a bit of a debate as to what someone could conceive as structure. In general, we're talking about the long form, you know, the, the long form arc to your song, what sections are going to be defined, the, sec- the sections within the song, and so forth. But, as I recall, Affection, despite the fact that it was very, very grand and very, very alluring, very endearing, it did indeed have a verse-chorus structure. Every single time it goes back to that affection, and it sort of swoons on that affection oh, oh, oh or something to that effect and that is the chorus and you can't ignore it and then it swings back again and then it swings back again and it was really just a pivot action it just I happened it was, to affect know what, us in it, such a way you're probably right i think it might be more of the fact that the way they use the the instrumentation and the melody in it and 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 fooled around with those aspects this is it, why we do this because yeah. <laughs> well i think it's, in oh, the and, end you know i have i have another point example. toward one another not less for another and it's not on the micro scale of the song but on the macro scale of the album we have a lot of expectations when it comes to the album what song's going to follow what song i mean at times it almost feels predictable we know if we get a three and a half minute song a three and a half minute song a three and a half minute song that if they're going to do something that's six minutes, well, it's going to probably be something a lot slower and sweeter that's and everything like that. That's something that's almost definitely going to break free from classic pop structure. I mean, it's you can, of course, repeat the verse-chorus thing endlessly. And actually, we have encountered some tracks that do that. But more often than not, yeah, once you breach the six mark, you're probably doing something a little bit, a little bit quirky. And that's when I like to talk about section A, section B, when you really have to sort of define your own your own way of categorizing that particular track because you know you can't do it with verse chorus verse chorus so you might as well make up your own structure i mean that's what they're doing so that's how you have to sort of build it you know maybe it's an a maybe it's an a prime a revisiting of the same a section but with a different twist certainly with different uh figuration on the bottom and then a a total defined b section something that is almost unrelated that departs so so boldly from the a section this is the stuff that i really like to talk about well one thing i, I would like to bring up is it's actually taking that and turning it on its head uh, if you remember scale the summit um oh i do my episode 67 tr- my truly favorite song on that album and still again one of my favorite songs we've ever reviewed it's evergreen evergreen and I still look at that song, and it is it is a fraction in length compared to the other songs on that album. It's, uh, it was and, undoubtedly below the two minute barrier. It was somewhere between one and two minutes. And, and it, it was, was a minute and a half actually. Yeah, and it was it was on an album with a lot of five and six and seven minute songs. And I still look at that song, and what what gets me because I recently re-listened to the album because I was craving it. Um, was that because of how short and sweet it accomplished so much of what the previous tracks did, what the further tracks did, mm-hmm. in such a abbreviated time, yet seemed to be as long as its previous, and that was just breaking free from what they did beforehand. And I think it was it was that part of just 
just futzing with everything. And that to me is just as fascinating with those long form structures. It's just as fascinating as those long form structures because it it's you're reducing it then. You then you're you're taking a minimalist approach and saying, well, we can achieve something that has a shorter, more succinct message and be just as powerful as any of your classic length songs or your classic structured songs. It was, as I recall, uh, just I-, I could barely even define that track by A and B. It was almost just a single section with with narratives that that take place over the course of this single confined A. Well, I think also with that track, especially, is it's not just the structure. But that song had a soul to it that was kind of unlike anything else on the record that was so potent. And I think that lends from the melody in the song. The, the melody that drove that song, because it was all instrumental, the whole album was, in uh, Scale the Summit. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. that was yep. the whole instrumental. But the soul of that song, the melody of that song was so potent and unique within that structure especially. I think is what really drove it. It brought something out of that song thing, though, that we haven't seen before. Is that, that the album. melody is, is actually absent for the majority of it. And I believe it only comes in with the very, very low bass, as I recall. And that, to me, the sort of whirring, swelling bass at the bottom that just bends upwards and bends back down, that to me is what I would actually define as the melody in that particular track. Other than that, it's a lot of just figuration that paints the, the mood itself. Almost and like harmonies without no, a melody. I'll, it was the absence of melody, believe it or not. In no, that no, no, no. I would still say that bass, uh, that lower register was definitely a melody. But it came, it, as I recall, it, 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 was it came fleeting, in later. But that was what really... I think I called the track a crystallized moment or something as grandiose as that. And I still <laughs> abide by that terminology and description. You abide um, by it. I do. I abide by many things I've said in my life. But it's for the awkward. There's parts, so ma- okay. There's so many parts to talk about. Actual in the song, the melody, the harmonies, the rhythms. There's so many different aspects of what actually makes up the various layers of a song. Just musically speaking, mm-hmm. a melody can be strong. It can be weak. It can be absent. But without a melody. It, it becomes a lot harder to define songs. It is. And except I, sectionally, as we were just discussing. Even this is very, very uh, intimately related with structure because of the tendency we have to relate music to a story. And structure is, of course, the, the, the narrative arc in which you're telling your story. I mean, a lot of times there's, there's just these points that you want to drive home, which we interpret as the chorus and whatnot. But in the end, there will be a voice, and that's the strongest part of the story. Who is the narrator? Is it in the first person? If it's in the first person, well, essentially that is your melody. That is that is the single driving soul, as 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 you put it. It really is the 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 essence of what the story is, because without the character you have you have only a series of events with this faceless entity. And that's not as relatable for us. We need a person there. And Music can reproduce this in a fascinating way, just like I said about the violin, because it, it resembles, I mean, that's really on the nose, because it re- just happens to resemble the human voice so much in, in both register and, and its uh, breathing abilities. But um, it's, b- apart from that, just its presence, period, just the fact that there is a single instrument, usually a single instrument, that guides itself through a very, very independent line of notes. Something that exists completely apart from whatever else is going on and something that cannot be ignored 
And that actually, taking that on a, a further macro level, allows you to create similar melodies uh, from song to song, which has been used to the detriment of albums, in our opinion, but also to the positive aspects of albums right. as well. Using a melody that is just too similar, that just sounds like itself over and over again from song to song, can really detract from music, from from what uh, an artist may be doing, depending upon the configuration of what's around the melody. At the same time, using a very familiar melody outside of what you've already created in the album can also do something as well. When, when you're using something that harkens back to the 60s or 50s, maybe jazz, maybe blues, maybe classic rock, or you start going back even further when you start doing things like honky-tonk, when you start doing ragtime, you can, you can pull melodies from these eras and really bring it into the forefront. That's actually really... But by changing the instrument, you get a, comp- you get a similar melody, a similar feel, but something that, that does reinvigorate itself. Well, that's an interesting observation just because I, I'm, I'm thinking while you're saying that I'm trying to, to think of, of, of melodies, just flat-out melodies that I would put in another time. Granted, I guess I can, especially when I think back to uh, The Young Veins, which we reviewed in episode 9, which was this retro 60s surf rock album. And for sure, I guess the melodies there really did harken back to the era. But when I really think about it, I think it's more the other components, the, the bass components that harken back to the era, the framework, the setting. That, that's really what puts you in the time, I think, more so than the melody. Because the melody the is really what made the song unique. Because that's something that I can, can confidently say did not exist back in the, in the, in the 60s. That, that singular melody, though familiar in its relation to the framework, is at least the most unique, unique thing about it. But, but there are certain iconic settings, iconic songs that have created melodies and rhythms that really, really just will always be attributed to them. Hmm. I mean, if you talk a lot of surf rock, talk Miserloo, how can you hear drums even in a, a partially similar vein to that without actually going to it? How can you hear a guitar melody in a similar vein without actually going to Miserloo? I mean, that song was from uh, uh, Pulp Fiction. Is very well known. It's also very well known if you like surf rock. It, <laughs> Dick Dale was the god of surf rock. That he was. And uh, just hearing this song, you will hear it used in so many different ways. And a lot of artists nowadays have, have used that specific song over and over and over again. Aspects of it. Parts of the melody, parts of the rhythm. Well, what to just say? invoke that. That's an interesting observation. I never thought about it that way, but I suppose that's interesting. If if a if a song, if a melody is is just that powerful that people seek to, or even without even thinking about it, sometimes they just naturally go back to the same melody. I mean, it must have been pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, well, but I think that's also not just the melody on its own. No, I, I do think that's mostly framework. But yeah, well, and melody can be achieved in many other ways, also. I, Right, well, I think also the thing that really pushes the melody to the forefront is its other partners, the harmony and the rhythm. I mean, you were saying before that it was really a true structure of a song with the, the melody 
being pushed to the forefront, backed by those things, that really make a solid song that stands out. If you right. if you are lacking in a rhythm in the rhythm department or completely lacking in harmony, it would take a pretty strong melody to still carry a song on its own, and can be done. Can be done. We've had acapella, but uh, it's but it's not as common. I mean, like for example, one of our favorite bands to tout at any opportunity, Steam Powered Giraffe. The thing that really defines them as a band is not only do they have great melodies, rhythm, and harmonies, but their vocal harmonies and their musical harmonies with the rhythm and melody they create is what it creates that kind of cacophony of sound that we've come to know that they're capable of, and that really stands out as a character in the overall structure. It's those things together, working together, that really make those songs. Yeah, the harmony, a, uh, as a bit of a personal uh, personal shout-out, I'm going to say that it's this easily my favorite on the list. Now, it's, it's very difficult to categorize these things because, of course, there's many things. Well, it doesn't work without the other, or you need them, you know, to all sort of jive. But I, 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 I seem to frequently encounter that, that a great harmony is really the meat that makes an album, I, uh, that makes a track, that makes even a moment. Because I, I, I said this even really, really early on, I think it's in my bio, that I really like the moments in music. That that's sometimes what does more for me than the entirety of a track is just that singular glimmer of inspiration. And a lot of times that has to do with what I call vertical motion. And that is what happens in a single frame. A single frame, you have how many instruments playing at that same time? What chords are they building? Sometimes you have to treat the adjacent moments along with it because chords are often defined by the chords that they follow or the chords that they're going to go into next. And these little motions, the, these, these little, these, the voice leading in there, all the varying little intricacies, which, which is often the fine-tuning for an artist, the stuff that comes later, the stuff that comes at the end when you're trying to really build your work and make it something impactful, as opposed to the, the bare-bones idea, that's just, it's just the best. That's, 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 that's that part in the discussion <laughs> where you go... He went. He went all the way to C major. Who goes to C major? Nobody goes to C major when you're following a, a so and so and with a such and such. And you're going on the one and the fourth, but now you're in the seventh. Like, why are you going to the seventh? I love that, that you're paraphrasing me, but yes, yeah. no, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. He can't quote you because he doesn't know what you're saying half the time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no. Well, say words. If there was something really, numbers, really crazy just prior to that C major, then yeah, that C major would be pretty damn weird. So, yeah, these are the kind of things that, that can happen it's, over the course of... Uh, and those are the parts that make a song, like, truly that, that unique that's the most little used. factor. That's the, <laughs> that's the unique little tidbits. Yes. This is, this is what deviates it is, one from the herd. It, it is deeper than that very, very often because... And, of course, I haven't really broached on, on, on you know, chordal uh, content yet, but that's... That's a lot of what it has to do with, and this is why I bring something to the table here, which I, I knew I was going to bring from day one, although I wasn't always sure how to implement. And I decided that the best way to implement it is to highlight the moments that really seem to make a piece unique for me, or to make a moment unique, that it thereby makes the piece unique, and that is to talk about music theory. I know a lot of times for, for a listener who, who isn't familiar with musical theory, but may still be just as analytical as, as we all hope you are, then music theory can sometimes go over your head. But I try to break it down in, in, in layman's terms or perhaps inspire someone to, you know, go by their nearest keyboard and try to figure it out or recreate it or ask your friend because this is also how 
inspiration is born is by following these little moments that other artists have imparted to you. Not necessarily their entire genre, their entire instrumentation, or their structure, or their melody. Things that are kind of obvious, or kind of easy to reproduce, or would be very easily noticed afterwards. That you can pin your finger on and be like, aha, you just referenced that person, or you're following the footsteps of that particular band. But when you recreate these moments, and recreate these little harmonies, Often, they can begin entirely new ideas. At least this has been my experience as a composer, and I believe that's how it can happen for other people as well. Right, and also I think the thing about that is, even if they don't understand exactly what you're saying, we live in the Google generation, very easy to pause the browser, go to another tab, Google all the things you spieled. And so easy to get chords and, now. And, or yeah. if you happen to have a, a guitar tab. that you don't pick up too much, you know, and tabs we're an audio make it very podcast. easy. We're audio. There's no real visu- visual element unless you're actually on YouTube watching the screen. They should really, honestly, have Wikipedia open to type in a lot of the words that Steve says anyway. Um, <laughs> it's funny, though, that Steve Or talks... the history or the band or stuff like that. I mean... Anything, really. Honestly, I've listened to our podcast back and I've had Wikipedia open... So I could double-check some of the facts that we go through on it. Just because I know sometimes we do get things wrong, though we don't get too much wrong anymore. Which is good. Well, hey, also, I it think always it's happen. important. And it always does happen. We've had corrections very recently, and, and we try to, to be updated with We that. post on the site when necessary and comment on the podcast when necessary to correct those problems. But it's funny that Steve says he focuses on the smaller moments which you're equating to the harmony and those special moments that the harmony or the melody have caused... Because I find that I get a lot of emotional pull from the rhythm of a song. The, 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 I've mentioned so many times on a song, oh, I love that marching drum beat, I love a marching drum beat, or the bass line. <laughs> a grooving bass line can fact, really get you moving. I think a lot of times that's also been where we've had our points of contention, because I don't always like a marching drum beat. But right. you know, this is where we get into the, the little nitpicks of what we like, what we don't like. But I really like wait, Afro-Cuban rhythms. <laughs> wait, wait. George. Giorgio Morador. Giorgio. Uh, the whole song. Daft Punk, yeah. Random Access Memories, episode 49. Who won the Grammy last year. Um, and we did rate them very highly, so I guess we were actually in the same vein as the Academy. Um, that terrifies me. I know. <laughs> we're, quote, mainstream. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that whole song was actually about the whole... The rhythm. He explains that the whole song is based around that one rhythm he discovered. That he just put the click on the track. Yeah. And it gave him the inspiration to create the music that he created. That is pretty fascinating considering what I just said about harmony and how harmony, uh, a particular moment of harmony can burgeon a whole idea. Well, that's even almost more fascinating if, it, if it's a single tick, a metronome tick, can inspire you know that much because that's just a tempo at that point that's barely even rhythm that's just the sing that's just the the bare bones tempo of your piece that is unwavering the most unchanging thing about a piece is its tempo unless it has some abstract tempo which we don't encounter too frequently but i like when we do either case a metronome is is the definition of rigidity that is what is used in the studio or in rehearsal and practice sessions to keep performers to keep people who are learning their instrument in time so that way they won't stray from the path and intuitively that seems to be so contrast to creation because it keeps you in 
this in this framework that often it's been complained about that metronomes we shouldn't even give kids metronomes because they can you know become a little bit too steady-minded we want them to break free but that's proof to the alternative especially for a, a techno band like Daft Punk or it's it's it can also be how you approach a rhythm because just approaching the rhythm with an open mind can lead to just creation of new things and new ideas and taking old ideas and putting them in new stuff one of the biggest reasons why I love the heist is not just Macklemore and how he sings and what he's singing about but it's how Ryan Lewis approaches the mixing I mean, it is a hip-hop album with an instrumental track. How many hip-hop albums have ever done something like that? And the track itself was... It binds the album together a lot more when you consider that the music is not merely there as, as a backdrop or a scene-setter, you know, in your, on your stage. It is an integral component, and it, it's just as important. And obviously, when you insert an instrumental track, that's kind of hammering that home, which is why I enjoyed that track quite myself. Or using saxophones and horns for rhythm, or piano for rhythm. Instruments that are kind of outside the realm of what you would attribute Consider to... Consider a rhythmic instrument, yeah. Like a percussive instrument. I mean, drums. Drums are rhythm machines. That's why the first rhythm machines were drums. In fact, because, because you mentioned saxophone, I'm going to go with something that was fairly recent. Uh, back in episode 86, we did St. Vincent. And I remember... Uh, the, the track w- w- which featured all of her saxophones like heavily and that was one of the main digital singles witness. I believe Digital Witness that's right I think it was Digital Witness it was Digital Witness where yeah, that was had the, witness, the short indeed. horn playing in a percussive way those horns were played in a percussive and yet, and yet staggered way yeah. they would come and then they would leave and they would come really fast again and then they would leave again that's it, an interesting rhythm period without even mentioning the fact that it's driven by saxophones themselves which we don't consider granted they can do a really really great staccato but sometimes you really just need a, a you need that awareness in an artist to tell your audience that yes saxophones can do a really really great staccato as opposed to the jazzy melodic instrument or uh, god forbid kenny g instrument that we're familiar of it as i mean that's oh, just the having, diversity of the of the tone i'm having more flashbacks to elevator rides <laughs> well, but the the thing is, I mean, also, I'm glad you brought up St. Vincent, which is still at the forefront of one of my favorite records for this year. Because I'm upset he stole it from me. Shut up. <laughs> Nobody cares anymore. We're over it. Um, we're over it. You're not. But we're over it. Um, is her, you know, talking about how the things that really define a song for us or an album and why we do what we're doing and how we're breaking this down. Her vocals, I remember all of us being in complete agreement that is some of the most beautiful vocal work we ever heard it was a foregone conclusion we stopped mentioning it because, because we, we mentioned it so much because we would have just kept repeating ourselves we've done this with a lot of bands steam powered giraffe love their vocals we'll keep saying we love their vocals but after a while you gotta just go yes that is a but that's kind of undermining some of these these uh, musicians and their ability to sing uh, and i when do want to mention though that vocals are very closely tied with melody. A lot of times those two have to go hand in hand. But I'm separating them here because of the fact that uh, melody is the soul, yes, but the voice is the tool. 
And a lot of times, you need to bring that out. If you have a great melody, but if you sing it in a lackluster way, you know, even if you are on point with your notes, even if you just hit every note on the mark, but if you lack inflection, what is it? What is it? Then it's then you might as well be a human MIDI instrument. That's about right. <laughs> that's well, about as far as you'll go, unless that's somehow the the sound that you're trying to achieve. But just just like you have to be able to vibrate a, a violin string to truly hit the emotional levels you're you're going for. Sometimes you, there's got to be a quaver in the voice. Sometimes mm-hmm. actually going off the melody with your vocal work uh, is is pointed and good being at odds with the music itself vocally does a lot to to expand upon just the emotional level of what you're creating here being at odds odds with it is a very that's that's a a challenging artistic choice but something that we've encountered several times already actually like even when you start doing simple stuff last week we did um oh why am i blanking on the band i know the song oi oh um the carbon leaf uh, Carbon Leaf, episode 99, uh, with Joe Rude for the second time. Oi. He did. It's <laughs> not just, the, the song didn't just have the right words, but the way they were presented, just the way he sang was just so heartfelt. Well, I want to go back to something you were all saying before, just about that at odds, because I, I, I thought you were going to mention uh, another track on, on that record in which he tends to get to the point where he's almost just speaking normally as if he's just back in the bar there he's not on stage he's not in the studio he's just back in the bar and he's speaking and that's something that the voice can do because that's that's, that's what i interpret I by your at odds with this that whole uh, yeah we've encountered <laughs> it earlier also back in in arc iris she had a tendency to do this i believe in, in the second track on that record although it escapes me um well even there was another place where we discovered the vocals really not working defined how good bad a song was and Steve pointed this out when we did Neil Sasirga's remix album you pointed out that um, I'm not going to remember the name of the track because they were all such ridiculous names but the one where he meshed Full House and Alanis Morissette um, that I think was it was just called Alanis Alanis, Alanis. Alanis her yes. name is Alanis I like Oz <laughs> um, we can make fun of you for a couple of names you mispronounced so Alanis um, when when he layered her vocals over the Full House theme, they so didn't work with that theme, it created a disconcerting feeling that was almost positively intentional, you know? And it's interesting that he used the vocals to convey that. It's because of the inherent groundedness of vocals, period. Vocals are something, you know, you're not always walking around town with, like, a saxophone beside you. You're not always walking around town with, like, a piano. That'd be very challenging, although occasionally it happens in the city with a piano on wheels that actually goes down the street. But, pretty rare. But, we all hear the voice 24-7. It's, it's, it's not an instrument to us. It's more often a conversational tool for us than it is an instrument. But, it has that emotional tool from just your everyday dealings with a person, a friend, a lover, whatever. That's the power that the voice has. So then when you apply it to music, you have the capacity to not only go deeper into the art form, but also to ground it in reality and bring you back home and let you experience something that you might experience when you're not listening to music. So it's that at odds, that tete-a-tete, which I I think actually is, is more the essence of why vocals even exist in music, period. 
but you can also run into tropes and things like that. We've made a lot of complaints about uh, Gregorian chants or choirs or something like that when this goes back to a couple of things we discussed earlier about expecting things to mess up. Well, a lot of times when you're using uh, I love a choir... A good, I love a good chant. <laughs> yeah, but when you're using a choir, you want to do something, especially when it's that kind of prepubescent young choir type of a sound. No, you're right. And actually, I think that speaks to just what I said, because frankly, that's something that is not as common. Also, the second you merge voices together and, and people are are singing in, in harmony, I mean, maybe call this a cynical approach, but I, I don't, especially living in New York City, I don't often encounter that level of togetherness. And so off, it takes me out of reality, believe it or not, hey, when church- all of a sudden people are, are just you know, joining in as a, as a choir at the end of a chorus, it's almost unnatural to me, despite the fact that it has the home, human voice. When it's layered, when it's doubled like that, can be disconcerting. Well, I was a church-going boy growing up. Oh, me too. Yeah, it's, but, been, you know, it's been a while, but I was a church-going boy for a lot. Well, you, you, you had a synagogue. I don't know what music they have in, in synagogue. Yeah, we have yeah. music there too, but it's usually the cantor leading. Okay. Ah. I anyway. something. Choirs were just everybody. They, even if there wasn't a choir, the whole congregation would sing along to it. But you get those kind of tropes in it, if you know what I mean. It, it, it can be you can use voices wrong. I think in general because that's exactly what governed it. Um, the, our history with choir, when we go back to Gregorian chant, as you just at this said, point, at this point, it's like, just shoving church, your face church, in it when you go too far. When you go, the earliest pieces of music that we have recorded is church music. It it was the guiding the guiding light, I mean, not to be uh, put upon there, but throughout most of early music, the church really was the guiding light for music, period. And then music broke away because the church had finally guided something. But it was at least, a, it was at least a, a place where people could go to enjoy something together. Not that they couldn't do that outside of it, but, you know, when you consider Dark Age Europe, for instance, yeah, the church was probably your your equivalent to a community center and a and a therapist and just about everything else in your life. So it made a lot of sense that music was born out of this, and that's why even today when we hear a choir, I I do really think religious music a lot of times, even if it's completely separate, even if it's singing about something satanical, doesn't even matter. I tend to think of that style, maybe not as far back as the Gregorian chant, but somewhere in the last one thousand years of of church music. The choir, the, choir the choir is, the choir. is dominant. It's the choir. Yeah. There's other aspects of voices, though, that are used improperly. And that is the auto We're really into voices. We I'd, skirted over rhythm, but we're really into voices. Well, <laughs> voices are one of the most identifiable aspects of any band, of any album, of any uh, a song itself. They're the personality, and that should definitely be mentioned. I mean, you can only hear two basses will sound the same if the same chords are struck the two drums are going to sound exactly the same if you play them the same way but no two voices are ever quite exact they always true. have a unique aspect to them that's true and it's not, um, so it's not just the fact you know that we equate it with any human voice you know and that it relate brings us back to reality and that it's also the fact that we equate it to the actual person that's it's an singing. individual it gives us it, it, it gives us names that you know we can go back and we can find several uh, solo artists no, more than we've that. had many much solo more artists much here. more than that the voice is still the unique instrument no band 
with two different vocalists will ever be able to make the same song if they're using vocals. Well, and that's what I'm driving at, that it's, it's, it's the personality of that particular singer, that particular artist, that I think is what we're looking at here. And that's I why I think the I voice is like... usually what, what drives that. I mean, I'm sorry to say, personally, because I, I really love Scale the Summit, um, but I, I don't personally know any of any of the band members. Now, maybe if I was, if I if I had delved a little bit deeper at the time, and I still do intend to delve more deeply into their uh, into their ensuing records, then I will get to know this. But it's just you can't ignore it sometimes when there's a person up front, center stage, at a microphone. That is the personality that people follow, and a lot of times we live in a personality culture. That's who we follow sometimes more than the art. Well, also, it's not just the personality of the vocals, but it's what they're saying, too. The, a lot of the sure, lyrics that a... these vo- these vocalists are singing, the lead singers are singing, truly define the characteristics of them, and even sometimes their band. The literal voice has a has a voice, has a metaphorical voice. Right. Well, take, the, uh, take like, the band who we have not reviewed on the album, but how me and John have mentioned a bunch of times, Mindless Self-Indulgence. Their ah. lead singer, Jimmy Urin, has a distinct voice vocal sound, but also a distinct singing style and topical singing style. He is very cartoonish. His A lot of the songs he sings are very animated and very over the top, sometimes with nonsensical lyrics. Or, for example, take uh, an artist like Rob Zombie. Who, or, if you want to talk nonsensical, uh, Butthole sur- uh, Surfers, Laszlo Bane. Uh, a lot of the 90s. Wow, a lot of the 90s. But these are artists who define I themselves by these playful. roles. We haven't got yes, there yet. Course, we didn't said get there. But, <laughs> but these are artists who define themselves by this character they've created, this voice that they've created that defines them and most of the time their music and their band. Yeah, and that's why it's kind of unusual when you... A lot of bands evolve. And this is one thing that... It's, it's hard to, to really describe the evolution of a band. Well, you can say, yeah, their instruments have gotten better, and, well, maybe they know how to play the bass better, or maybe the guitarist uh, has, has gone up or gone down in quality. Vocals. Vocals do change over the career, unless you're really lucky like some guys, like Serge Tankian. Thank God his vocals haven't changed. Or Ozzy Osbourne. When we did 13, I It's mean, inevitable. Just accept it. it when we did happen. 13, we really would be hard-pressed to point... Between Ozzy's past and Ozzy's presence, I'm uh, I'm almost positive that Ozzy will sound like same Ozzy when he's hundred years old, for better or for worse. And honestly, he's a lucky <laughs> bastard for it because he has his voice and he, he does has have his, it and he has his following. But one thing that can always change, from from song to song, even in the transmutation of a song, uh, from album to album, is the words themselves. But that's really either you can write lyrics or you can't and there's no wrong or right way to write lyrics we've talked about the metaphorical we've talked about the candid and the literal we've talked about the short little snippets and and saying a word so so specific to that moment that it was perfect and we've talked about waxing eloquence for for many a line when you start talking the heist i mean uh same love for all of the vocal work, for all the the, the actual uh, musical power in that song, what gets me most in that song is the words being said. What he's saying, the call to arms of that song, is what, what brings a tear to my eyes. Well, that's like, take a song like Honeybee, 
by Steam Power Giraffe. Oh, that's the perfect mesh. Yeah, that that's the song where the voice and the and the lyrics are so perfectly in tandem. It builds a perfect character of heartbreak for for Rabbit that will get you every time. I, I'd find someone hard pressed to not have an emotional reaction to that song. I have an emotional reaction, but for me, it's 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 more of the uh, melody and the harmony for me. I mean, when I think about the lyrics, I can't recite all of them. All I recall is, of course, the way in which they sing "Honey Bee" and the other melodies therein. So you know, there's a there's, there's a a big divide here. Now, once we hit upon the lyrics as as this big talking point between lyrics and the music, because this is the one thing, uh, after all that we've mentioned, that is entirely separate. It can't exist without music at all. It can and exist as poetry. And that's what inspires it, is that poetry came first. Or, well, poetry, I can't say that per se, but po- there was poetry, and then there was music. And a lot of times they did not go hand in hand. A lot of times it was felt that you could do more with each separately than you could with them together. and Which is weird. It, it is weird. the best poetry known today is done in, uh, well, no, not the best, but the most famous poetry known today, such as Shakespeare's sonnets, are written in very musical forms. They are. They're, they're, they're meant, inspired by music in a way. Iambic so there pentameter is, there is sort of is this, this trade-off back and forth as you go through history. Yeah, iambic pentameter itself is a beat form of poetry. And that's why... Uh, I'm willing to bet, though, that someone hit a rock rhythmically before they decided to put prose together. Well... That's just theory. That's... Just theory. Well, just throwing it out We've been hitting there. rocks together for about 15,000 years, that's but that's the size figured, of yeah. Um, <laughs> prose is a challenging thing. Well, and it's also, it also requires just a little bit, and, 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 and bear with me here, just a little bit of pretension. Because it, it implies that your words are golden and that your words will inspire. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. But... If, if you it, can do it, if you can do it, exactly. Yeah, because not many people can with, do it. without that, it without that 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 fine line, you don't quite know when you've crossed it or not. And without that, then you're just left with solid words, which can fall flat on their face. Well, and the then most, it just sounds like the you're most important speaking aspect, gibberish. The most and important aspect, in my opinion, for lyrics themselves, is not how it meshes with the melody and the harmonies. That's the actual vocal work, but for words themselves. It's how it works with the rhythm. Because syllables yeah. are said at a certain speed in every song. And there's a very defined reason why that artist would choose that speed. It's because of the 4-4 four, four or 8-4 or 7-2 or, or whatever <laughs> tempo they're working with here. The, whatever the, setup. Those, those are all viable. Yes, I know. Um, I learned that you have to put the big number on top. Um, no, not always. <laughs> shush. I, I learned it. Big number top. Anyway. <laughs> I'm losing myself. Anyway, the words are going to be said to the beat, to the rhythm. And honestly, the most unique aspects of a song are when it breaks free from that chain. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. You're supposed to sing along with the beat. It's how children's songs are made. It's how it's it's a great learning tool. Yeah. It's the alphabet song. It's Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. You sing along with the beat. But it's when you break away from that that you really kind of get a lot of either the worst or the best of the points of those lyrics. Yeah. And I I mean it's 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 interesting that you brought up uh 
education in this too because they are really intertwined in that way at least just the way we are all taught you know growing up in western education that that's just that's just part of it you 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 learn songs with rhythm because it's 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 inferred that that's supposed to sort of help your brain expand in some way and when you think about it it, it is kind of helpful because you're you're all of a sudden being taught to process two different things at once it may not seem on the face of it like those are two very difficult things to process but the artistic pursuit of it actually is pretty difficult i know have met many musicians that or many writers of lyrics that either had problems with one or the other their instrumentalists can't come up with lyrics for their life or you know lyrics lyric people who will write great poetry and they have books and books and books of things that they jotted down all throughout their day and all of this stuff it you could see it but you just can't quite put music to it and a lot of times that's where the greatest collaborations take place is the integration of those two and um, but i mean sometimes it's a problem with actually creating too fine of a mesh going back to education just go through the this is the listeners go through the alphabet in your head and see if you pause after the letter g only because in the song there's a pause after the letter g it's hard to say the yeah. alphabet without that pause it's musical and a that's, b c that's, d e f g that's right h i j k you go on we were I mean, all programmed with that it's when you break away from that and this is one of the main reasons why i love hip-hop it's the free form of that lyrical work the 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 ability of the artist to go away from the rhythm when singing or speaking it's why i love a lot of flow bots it's why i love a lot of uh, uh like early eminem and things like that he'd like to fool around with the ry- rhythm to ignore it when it needed to happen that's why i mean i love words and i love words presented in such a way as to make them interesting even if they're not hmm. and by playing around with the rhythm and playing around with the combination of the words to the rhythm that's where i find like my favorite parts of some songs of a lot of songs of probably most songs and since we're on lyrics here and i had my spiel on harmony and he has a spiel on lyrics we should we should also uh take this this time to just have a little aside on on where our 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 personal uh fortes were at the time that we started this podcast because this is something that especially if you listen to our earlier episodes we were very much divided on where i sought to talk about music whenever i could and i really didn't have much to say about lyrics and john was exactly the opposite not of course you know it was about music you did jump in with music quite, oh, yeah. quite a bit but but you brought oh, it yes. back to lyrics more than Words. i more than i anticipated and that was very, very interesting to me. Yeah. And it was as as the podcast drew on where I realized, you know what? For the art that is being presented, it obviously this is an integral part of what this artist is trying to get out. You can't possibly ignore it. Just the fact that we call it a music podcast doesn't ignore the fact that lyrics are presented as music. Otherwise, they would be poetry. But and they you felt can't... they needed a setting, and they work best in you, that setting. You, you can't ignore the... the instrumentation that's built around music because that will change the setting of of the words themselves a love story set to death metal is significantly different from a love story set to folk rock yeah but and it but, also gave me and, an opportunity but but i will say something like here right right now if if we're talking about specifics matt was the only one that was worth well not worth but trying to bridge the gap between the two yeah well also at the time the fact is you can have lyrics and you can have music but without a connection to both or at least one, some kind of connection, 
they're almost worthless. If you're not connecting somehow to them, whether it's acknowledging the art, understanding the emotion, or both, they will fall flat. And that's where I kind of fell in why we, why and how we were connecting to those albums and that music. Yeah. And then, you know, I've gotten since then more specific with what I like about music and the instrumentation, as well as the lyrics that I'm looking for that I connected with. For me, of course, it was just the way in which I, I grew up where I found myself. Now, granted, it's not to say that I had those specific bands where the lyrics had really, really grabbed me, but they were so specific. Beyond that, I found myself often when I was uh, reciting choruses and whatnot or reciting verses, I was singing along to them in my, in my head, and I wasn't always paying attention to the words because at that moment the melody was more important to me than the words. But, you know, when you really, really look into it, you, you can't completely ignore those words, which is why I was happy that I had the opportunity to explore my other, my other foremost interest next to music, which is, uh, which is literature, period. Because, obviously, it is poetry. Granted, it would be pure poetry without the music, but even with the music, it is still poetry. There is an art in, in the assemblage of these words. And you need to really, really look closely at that. And just, like, when you take them away from the melody, even though you can't always and even though you shouldn't always, what is really being said? Is it empty? If it's empty and it just happens to go with your melody, well, that's not going to say very much for the artist in that particular instance. You get dark then, horse. Yeah, then it's it's a throwaway. And that's not always look kindly upon because we, we like to see meaning in every place when we can. And that's why we've decided to, to really, really throw ourselves into this. And we've been doing this for many, many episodes now. I'm only talking about the first uh, several weeks of this in which we were not heavily lyrically oriented. But ever since then, I think we've uh, grown in that department. Short, yeah. little, short little aside. I think I never really explained why I am so heavily into lyrics. I always said I just read a lot of books, but that's not it. Uh, everybody knows Matt was given a love by his parents, most notably his father, he keeps doubting him, about music as a whole. And I understand that aspect. And Steve has waxed eloquence already a lot about how much he loves just picking apart those moments. But growing up... I have, yeah. This is a story I've wanted to share with you guys for a while. Growing up, my parents, especially my father, uh, I was always getting told stories whether it was through being handed my first novel, which was The uh, Complete Works of Winnie the Pooh. I still distinctly remember that, <laughs> which is actually a very, uh, I guess, tempo-oriented, poetic-oriented story. Oh, for sure. I remember uh, The Adventures of Christopher Robin. Was yes. that the book? Yes. Yeah, I had the, the, Winnie the Pooh. My I, first, I had a copy from books. like 50 years, old, 50 years ago. It's a great book. But my, my dad would also sit me down and tell me stories. And that's how I learned, like, communication. Just the inflection of words. The placement of words. I mean, some of his stories are kind of boring, but for the most, they were just, they were comedies, they were tragedies. There was a little bit of everything. The story about how he opened up a window on a Cessna while flying over Alaskan mountains at, I don't know, what was it, like 20,000 feet up in the air? Not something you do. Stories about him... Both growing up in California, moving from place to place, and growing up in Alaska as a fisherman, following the steps of his father. I mean, the story of how he met my mother from Brooklyn in Sitka, Alaska, which someone from Frisco, someone from Brooklyn, 
they made it meet in Alaska. Just like that. Words, to me, were magic. I have only one comparable thing there, and that was my... Uh, obviously, I'd never met them, but this would have been my, my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother. One was from Sweden, one was from Denmark. The two are pretty close, in case you're familiar with the map of Scandinavia. They met in Brooklyn. <laughs> I guess that's a little more common back then, the immigration age, but still kind of a funny thing. No, but I was talking... So, yeah, they, yeah obviously, these my kinds exposure, of stories are... Yeah, yeah, my exposure to just literature was Vonnegut, Heinlein, Tolkien. I mean, I was given individuals who were magic with words, were wordsmiths. And that's why one of those words, that's what I use to describe, like, the penultimate lyricists. Yeah, we're having wordsmith. Some, some fun with lyrics here. And indeed, that uh, story is a big, storytelling is a big part of it. But it's also, of course, um, you know, the annals of yourself, uh, a type of journal I, I find very comic, commonly in, uh, in modern lyrics, which is still sort of a storytelling. It's a story of yourself in a sort of Walt Whitman-esque kind of fashion. But then um, we get such You also have the endeavors. political, the political, uh, political songs, all no, these no, no, things. No, 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 I'm not even going that there. That really could not be done with the music purely. And I believe that music in its pure form can achieve a lot without lyrics, and that's what I like to explore almost the most. But, let's face it, it can't tell every story. We don't have a language for, for politics and, and societal issues in, in music itself. That's, that's more ineffable. That's trickier to convey, and that's why we have lyrics. Well, we also have things like Stuff His Way. We're truly the actual play of words. The Sometimes you don't have to make sense with the words themselves. It's just purely the choice of the words, the placement of the words. Yeah. can be music itself. The stuff is way from They Might Be Giants as a satire on the English language itself, and that's, that's in a whole other category. But yeah, satire, that's another thing you can achieve in... Well, actually, you can achieve that in both. So there's a lot of crossover here, and I, I, I think uh, that's, that's what Matt was talking about when he's about bridging the gap. Well, yeah, so, well, and it's also... Ultimately, when we talk about an album as a whole, we talk about its theme and its arc, both of those two things are very dependent on lyrics and music. You know, you you can't really discern a theme and an arc without certain things in both the lyrics and the music that really help bridge the gap and and contain this story, whether it's an actual literal story, a narrative, or just common themes that are conveyed. Well, just because I happened to mention that before about, about satire, I do want to bring up one interesting example about how music itself can also achieve satire next to lyrics. We think of that as being a literary art form, but obviously satire is just presenting anything in sort of a, 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 a twist, presenting something as is in a, in a twisted sort of way to, uh, to really convey what is the opposite of what is. And, uh, in literature, we know that is like a Jonathan Swift sort of thing, but in music, it has been done. Uh, I could I could think of several examples in the podcast where we've encountered music uh, satire, which is actually making commentary, playful commentary on previous trends in music. Like Another Lonely one, Island. Lonely Island. Lonely Island well, was the whole album was as satire. Absolutely, although that uses lyrics to help. Now, in just music, I find that that a lot the whole like neoclassical era like that followed um you could say it followed uh late romanticism or whatnot it, it would have appeared right around like uh 19 teens the 1920s and whatnot and just think of the word neoclassical why would you want to all of a sudden now as all these new uh as all these new sounds are coming out these new capabilities of 
of, of what music can do. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to go back to classical. And it was still, you know, contemporary classical, as I hate the term, but those types of composers would tend to be doing this sort of thing, where they would revisit classical structure as it existed back in the time of Beethoven, Mozart, and yet they would do the bizarre things that exist today, almost as if to make fun of classical structure and how rigid it was, just to see how bizarrely you could state something in such a otherwise interpreted as uniformly simplistic fashion. That, to me, is, is, is absolutely brilliant. And we do indeed encounter a lot of that, especially going back to an earlier bullet mark here, and that is structure. I think a lot of the satire we've encountered here, musical satire, has been structural satire. And lyrical. Just as... And lyrical. Yeah. Very heavily lyrical. Um, but that's only... The big penultimate thing of an album, outside of the actual genre, is, is, is the arc. And this arc is built upon genre, structure, and theme. That would be the three major components of it. We've done genre, we've done structure. Theme is one of the hardest things to attribute to some albums, and some albums is the easiest thing to attribute to it. Because a theme is built in so many different ways. You can do it as the various story uh, aspects. You can do it just in the styles of the presentations of the individual songs. Yeah. Like in uh, Goldfrap. I love the themes that were built into that album. That was episode 64, the, the theme s- of exploring various different facets of, uh, of, of love stories and whatnot. And which was dark, also done... How darkly they can go down. Also done in um, All American Rejects and their various theme works of love all of which were a little bit deviant from one another, or a little bit different from one another. They were different, They were, but they were also showing growth at the same time, since the Kids in the Street as a whole, its arc was showing the development of the lead singer, this main character, from being an immature whelp to this kind of more mature, I know what I'm looking for mm-hmm. kind of a person. Or yeah. if you want to talk themes that we tried to discover, Orca. <laughs> oh, Orca. Serge Tankin's uh, classical, I mean, I already mentioned earlier his, his, his jazz uh, album that he tried to go for, but Orca was the, was the symphonic album he tried to go for, and that was uh, back in, we reviewed that in episode 78. Uh, <laughs> theme, that was a bit harder for that one, but granted, you know... We kind of found one. Yeah, and it's not, it's not that it's, it's difficult, you know, when you're looking at, uh, at a at an album that is entirely comprised of of instrumental music without any uh without any lyrics to sort of help you with the theme or anything like that it's not that it's it's not that it's difficult it maybe goes against the grain for our 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 present way of thinking which really likes to have it stated on the nose i think pop music you know it can be very it can be aloof as well but still when it's stated on the nose you don't have to think you don't have to try you just know the theme and that's what it is. But, you know, poetry can obviously be a lot more aloof, and often it has greater things to say in doing so. And music can also be very aloof because it doesn't have those lyrics to help. But it can, it can cite messages. It can convey something. In the case of Orca, you know, well, I'm going to let you feel that one because you were pretty much governing that oh, day. Oh, man. 
Well, actually, that brings me to the next point specifically, is that our biggest arguments have been on theme. Not just Orca, but Kvekker. But uh, uh, Tomorrow's Harvest. Like, these are the things that... And I think it's kind of like my shtick to be... Kvekker, episode 60, Tomorrow's Harvest, episode tw- uh, 54. Yeah, I get married to themes. And I see them. And sometimes I know you two do not see what I'm spouting out of my mouth. My metaphors have gotten better eh. I, what do you mean eh <laughs> you've complimented a few of them but they've gotten some pretty good metaphors more recently um but still I, I eh. <laughs> I'm kidding when you start talking and that's why I love lyrics because they can build a theme so so easily theme is so inexplicably tied to the story of an album that Sometimes when I see it, I cannot go away from it. Well, you know what it happens though, and the only reason I, I I mockingly scoff is because of the fact that it it for many listeners this is the kind of thing. Just as I said before, it, it they want it to be on the nose, and when it's not on the nose, then sometimes sometimes they are correct in thinking that it's not there. So it it, it even though the artist approaches something. Right, and they have their own idea. A lot of times, you have to accept that even the artist is merely thinking of the music. A lot of times, that's just their only goal. So there isn't always a theme, and that's something that we just have to accept. Which is why this is not the penultimate thing, which is arc. But theme is something that is really more of an optional choice. It is a really nice, uh, it's a really nice cherry on top, I would say, because it does bind your album together in a way that sometimes supersedes all of those other earlier facets. If, if there's any doubt in, in, in the melody, or any doubt in the rhythm, any doubt in, in the, the presentation of the vocals, then sometimes this stuff can be justified if you just think in the larger box. Think outside the box. Think outside the song, and think about the album. Are there any themes that you may have noticed in individual songs that appeared to be separate, but when you get to the end, they might actually tell a larger tale. Sometimes this is obvious, a lot of times, especially as we've encountered, and yes, usually at John's observation, is not so obvious. And then but, sometimes it's just bull. <laughs> no, I still say Kvekker if you translate the words, it becomes an actual story. <laughs> anyway, anyway, shush. Um... It also theme can also be the make it or break it factor for our highest level of of albums, because I, I a lot of times it's been that that either theme or arc is just slightly too weak to keep it in that you know four seven five and higher range, um, because we review albums as a whole, we don't do just what a song is. In fact, we we really. At times, I've even said, well, there's two five-star and ten two-star songs, so let's average it together. And then I look back at it, and, well, I've even corrected myself as I'm saying that, because, no, this is not a individual track-by-track product. It is a whole. And that's where arc really becomes the most important factor when doing review. Because if you can't say as a whole you have a product... If you have instead a group of short stories that don't really go together, or if you have one or two good little ideas, but honestly, why'd you do them? It can it can make or break uh, 
these albums. It can make or break an artist. And this is how we get into the more challenging uh, aspects of, of what we do here, and this is the review at the end. And, and it, it tends to come to these things, although it's not exclusive to these things. All of these points are incredibly relevant, and almost any one of them can supersede another. Because, yeah, in the end, it's, it's going to boil down to, to what you get out of it and what, what you felt was most engaging, what you felt was, was most important at that particular time. Theme is something that, just face it, it can be great if done right. But a lot of times, especially in the case of albums which we hold in high esteem and we know that albums have a history of of being compilations if they started out as compilations then we can't always expect them to have a theme in which case sometimes you just have to retreat from the theme and return to the earlier points which is why i think there's there's a more um there's a more ineffable thing with which we have to go to which as john put it, is is the penultimate point here and that is arc Arc is something that supersedes theme and is really the, the defining factor in taking all of these things and bringing them together. Because it can say, well, you know what? You don't really have to have a theme, per se. You don't have to be telling a political message or a, uh, or a, or a love story or a, a tale of uh, extended tale of love and loss and heartbreak and all of that. It's just, you know, in the end, the music is really what stands. The individual lyrics can stand high above the whole. The the melody can sound high above the whole. The the rhythm can stand high above the whole. But how is the flow? And that's one of the most ineffable things I I I really have, struggle almost every episode to convey. But I try to in in relationship with these other points. And the flow is what we have called the arc. And we had a, a podcast, although I, I I don't recall it at the moment, in which we discussed the difference between theme and arc. And we think we have it pretty solid, and that's just the fact that a theme often brings a story to mind. And an arc doesn't have to. An arc is really just a journey that it takes you on. It's, it's an exploration of something that you can't always put your finger on, but you know that it relies on the assemblage of all of these little things. There is a master hand at work here. It's not just a hodgepodge of tracks that were made in no particular order and were thrown on here for no apparent reason. They, There was reason behind it, even if you can't always say, which we often try to. Well, genre will put you within the specific category of this Dewey Decibel library. Uh, your arc is your table of contents. It is chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. If you think of it in that way, it becomes easy to figure out, well, Maybe there's no story, but are you building towards something? Are you expanding upon themes? Are you introducing themes? Are you keeping it fresh? Are you just kind of boring? But there's also the idea that sometimes it's not even arc and theme that ultimately drives our review and our wrap-up and our final thoughts. Sometimes it's just that extra thing Something you can't put your finger on it. I mean, I really think That's one of That's why we called the arc the penultimate, because there is something in the end that can't be governed by arc or theme or anything else. I like the idea that, you know, I'm pretty confident that with the first Steam Powered Giraffe album, part of it was a hype that was given to us by Nelson Lugo and Joe Rude, but also part of it was 
there was a theatricality to that album and this kind of other facet that we couldn't really put our finger on specifically, but that added to that connection with that record. That idea that there was something more than just the music and the lyrics and everything that went with it. There was that other thing that was kind of almost ineffable and tangible that drove us to our review and our which, rating. Which actually would have driven us to Mark It falls III. in between and all over these other areas. It's, sure. It's, it's, it's a fascinating little leprechaun. <laughs> it could right. just be, it could, it could be all sorts of things. It could be outside the music itself. Honestly, the, Honestly, the vaudeville photograph of, of Two Cent Show was was just awesome on that cover. Well, I It mean, really was. I loved it. It can sure. also be things that... I would throw album artwork in here if, if, we, uh, if we put more effort into that. Or past discography, or just the story behind the album itself. Or expectation, or popularity, or There's so many mouth. outside factors involved when just discussing music. But there are also it's hard sub- to be just talking about the music itself sometimes. Well, there's also a subconscious factor. This idea that maybe emotionally, Steve connects more to sad songs, but he doesn't really know that he connects more to sad songs. He just kind of gets <laughs> the idea of it. So he might rate more favorably, favorably a more a sadder album. That's funny. I totally told my roommate that once, and that's that being told to he, me that <laughs> you know that we might not rate as favorably because we don't. It doesn't have that it factor for us. And I recently discovered, and I said on air, I don't think I like punk anymore. And I think it's mostly because I just kind of stopped listening it to it for a while, which neither here nor there. I mean, there was no real reason for it. But when I recently went back to it, I kind of am over the punk, the stuff that's being made today. I just, I don't see any connection to the previous stuff that I still like or the previous stuff that I may not even like anymore I don't want to test it out I don't want to listen to it anymore because I'm afraid I won't like it anymore because mm. it's the lost that factor maybe or yeah that that could be part of it repetition is a very important thing I mean a lot of times if, if something is just done to death that will subtract the it factor I mean we like things that are new and fresh I think just but because of the fact that we are mortal, we die. We don't have time for repetition, and we we, we kind of want to fill these short lives with things that are that are will at least wow us every step of the way. I think but, that's that's really the essence but, but, of it. But but we are still very much drawn to the familiar and safe, the songs from our childhood. We're I, I'm not going to turn off Q one zero four three K Rock when a great Doors or or a, a, a Beatles song oh, comes on. Oh, for sure. The several things that I've mentioned before that I've albums the that I've mentioned that can I be don't as important as the new. Right. Albums I've mentioned that I don't even remember not ever listening to, like uh, Men at Work's Cargo or or Vangelis's Zero Point Three Nine. Those albums, I will never ever get tired of. It's just a fact. That's just a fact of life. I don't even have to worry about them losing their their mystique for me because the mystique is there. They have some sort of eternal it factor, and le- at least for me. And that's why I think we're the, the most important thing with the it factor is the fact that uh, it does it come down to the individual. And that's the one thing that we can't really tell you. We can convey them the best of our ability in terms of all the previous things that we've mentioned, but we can't convey it independently beyond that. 
there is other stuff to this list, of course, that we haven't even really mentioned. Like, for instance, showmanship. That's an it factor in a way. But it's also very definable. There's, there's a presentation there, which is also somewhere in these things, but also just there. The delivery needs to be confident and needs to be just good. Well, the it factor also really lends to the thing that I've been saying since the beginning, the idea that everyone treats music very differently. And sometimes you can't really explain why you identify with something that someone else doesn't at all. I mean, we've had some examples on this podcast where it was so blatantly black and white that I was so... Like, for example, the Everlast record. I was so connected to that record on every level. And you guys just didn't see it at all. Yeah. Or me with Deep Chord. Or John with Deep Chord and me. And Steve being on outs with it. That Those albums definitely came down... The, but those albums definitely came down to the it factor. There was just a thing that we connected with on a level that was impossible to explain and wasn't seen by anybody else. And it's happened to all of us and will continue to happen, I'm sure. Those those problems will happen. And, um, you know, there are always the things... This is why I like to go on about the never-ending discussion of music because these are things that you can... You could say that you didn't even convey it the best, or you're always thinking of ways in which to justify what you like. And in many ways, you know, when we when we take on this project, even a lot of that does come down to that just a little bit. It's 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 looking for a way to justify what you see, what you see as good, and then also looking for a way to sort of disqualify what you see as bad. That's somewhat of a vindictive way of looking at it, but it, it, it's it's no less true because that. It goes back to the same passion that we're constantly pursuing. That that passion that we have to our own tastes, to our own music, is is gonna come out at some point. And you know, it's 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 good to have an outlet. At least we have this outlet. Sometimes it's just impossible to explain why and a piece of entertainment is entertaining. It's like a joke. If you have to explain the joke, the comedy is lost. That's why sometimes my words get stuck in my mouth and it comes out like nyam 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 nyam. And it makes no sense and I ramble on. Kind of like this. It's so hard to just get so many ideas out at once because you can only define it in terms that are sometimes just defining itself. It's, it's how do you explain the word run without using the word run? Well, this is a lot harder than that. Walking faster. Exactly. You can but this is music. This isn't a simple three-letter verb. This isn't even as simple as a long, elegant James Joyce piece at times. It is music. It's the kind of thing that is left up to debate, though. Like, I want to I wanna both uh, reserve the it factor as something untouchable and yet also say that we're constantly trying to touch it in sort of an asymptotic relationship, getting closer to it, but you never quite get there. But I do believe, I believe you can get... tangential is the word. No, asymptotic, definitely. No. Tangential. I don't think it's used as an adjective from, but asymptote, you know. Anywho. <laughs> <laughs> there is... There is that, that desire to just get really, really close to something, and maybe you never quite achieve it, but at least you made the effort. At least you're, you're on your way. Um, and... Uh, because I, I even just as you were bringing up those examples, you know, I could I could think like, in, in my terms, I could say like, well, you know, the reason why a joke may not be funny is, is specifically because of timing. I could even isolate the point in which it lost me. So a lot of this stuff is explainable, 
and it clearly has to be, otherwise we would not have have breached however many hours or, or weeks now that we've been in, in continuous audio that we've actually been uh, been discussing this sort of thing. I mean... But sometimes, the, art, art sometimes you laugh is and you both. don't know why. Sometimes, yes. I'm, I'm explaining that it's both. I'm explaining that it can be broken down to a science and yet maybe not even... You won't even know how to construct it again. It's... Okay, one of my favorite jokes. Sort of that. Guy walks into a bar, says Al. People chuckle. People still chuckle. It's the simplest idea of a joke. Simple, stupid wordplay on the word bar. It draws from the idea of a guy walks into a bar, sees a barkeep, blah, 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 and all those jokes. It's also the comedic Mm -hmm. idea of walking into a bar and hurting your forehead. It's also the whole pain joke. I mean, that's a funny joke. Misery makes comedy. But me explaining all that doesn't really explain why such a simple, stupid little wordplay with kind of lowbrow, painful comedy can still be funny. Yeah. And over and over again. That's the best part. Some people I get to laugh every time. I, I didn't laugh. I laugh every time. It's on the record now. I, I, I didn't laugh. Neither did I. But then again, John example. always laughs at his own jokes. I love, I love my jokes. He thinks he's hilarious. I, he's beaming right now for the record. I am hilarious. So, oh, I mean, and these are the things that really kind of go into, while it may seem like we're only analytical for two hours or two and a half hours, there's a lot more that goes into this than just us talking about the album, summing it up, and moving on to a topic. Um, and I think that the goal is to really find more ways to improve what we're doing here, why we're doing it. I mean, we told you the why. There are a lot of reasons why we do it. And now, why we want to continue to do it, where where we see it going. I mean... This is the, the third segment of today, and that really is is reviewing us. How are we doing? You know, and while I would love for you out there listening to tell us how we're doing, whether you love it, you hate it, or you speak just think up, we're okay, or you just think we're okay, <laughs> yes. I, I want to try something with you guys that I neglected to mention before we started because I didn't think of it till we were recording. I want you to tell me, and I can start if you want, what you're most proud of that we've done in the last two years. Or, or th- a thing about the podcast that you're most proud of and something you think we drastically need to improve. It could be the podcast, it could be the website, but something that you think is great and that needs little adjustment and something that you think definitely needs improvement. I think we need to start disagreeing more. I think that's our biggest issue. I've seen a trend recently that we mm. actually tend to be on the same page with so many different ideas and I think that might be because we kind of know each of our individual areas of expertise that we taught each other. I I, I think cited it, I cited this many 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 weeks ago and I think I think I I think you two doubted it at the time but no, no, I do no. believe I do believe now you're right that we are we are affecting each other's decisions. When, when I, I genuinely says, believe that despite what you, despite what either of us might say, because we might be really, really close to uh, to sort of defend our former beliefs, but I think all of us might have had different notions on a thing two years ago without the knowledge of how the other two people think. When I say something about lyrics, uh, mostly everybody agrees with me. When Steve says something about musicality, oh, he see. mostly agree with him. 
when you say something is deep, we mostly agree with you. Yeah, but we still have plenty of moments when we're listening to an album where you will say something blatantly incorrect because you're wrong. No, mostly about theme. That's where it comes down to, and that's the immutable for us. I think that I think that there's a trend of us agreeing more now, but I think it's also with the content that we're bringing. I mean, we all agreed on Katy Perry because we all pretty much thought it was meh. You know, I mean, like uh, we haven't gotten to the album I'm bringing next week, but I think the album I'm bringing next week we may all feel very differently about because it's a un- an artist who does something more unique and something very artistic, and so it could shatter that. Um, but okay, so you think that we need to disagree more? I think forcing ourselves to disagree is dumb. But yes, no, not no, forcing. No. But but yeah. he's suggesting that there's something on a subconscious level happening that maybe we I'm... have to be more aware of. Yeah, okay, that, that and I think we need to be a little bit harsher. Strike that. I think we need to be a lot of bit harsher. Well, we've been plenty harsh. Yeah, but a lot of times we'll just we, what's our favorite word? Sometimes benefit of the doubt. I know Steve loves that one, and I'm <laughs> I'm good friends. Well, with I it. U- well I usually use that phrase um, sarcastically. Or 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 um, I don't know. In playing devil's advocate, that's another one of my favorite phrases. But I, uh, strangely enough, I use both of those in in tandem. I use the phrase I will give it the benefit of the doubt in a in a devil's advocate kind of fashion, where I actually intend to disprove it later. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, but I I I didn't pull my punches with Les Claypool, and I didn't like that album. And you convinced me on certain songs, but I still didn't like that album and said as much. Yeah, you're still wrong. That's okay. I still think you're wrong about Everlast, so it's fine. But okay, great. So you think that's where we need to improve. What do you think we've got right? What's your favorite part of the podcast that you oh, don't think? I, I love our format. Okay. I love the way we do things here. I love having time to talk about the album. And a lot of times, because we do record this very late at night, we do run short. Um, but I feel like we always have enough time to talk about what we need to talk about. And I love doing this album in such depth in such just just digging in taking apart every little thing looking at it mathematically looking at it under a microscope and looking at it in broad swaths across the wall like I love being able to just stew with what we stew on okay so in review I like that you you dis, you think that we have to be more uh, the thing that you think we could work on is being more self-aware of being too uh, uh, agreeing too much with each other based on knowledge of each other's opinions. Yes. You think that something that you're very proud of about the podcast is our format and that we fine-tuned that. I think I think we actually have a great format right now. Okay, Steve, would you like to go next? Well, I'm I'm kind of next, aren't I? <laughs> well, I can go next if you'd like more time. I'll, I'll I'll go now. Although I do have a little speech that I think I'm going to save at the end, but I have, I have some things to say outside of that little speech. Um. First so, of all, in, in a direct response uh, to what you said, John, which I, I am in agreement with, uh, especially in the fact that we, you know, we have time to stew, we, we generally get everything out, um, there, there still are many moments where I am, I am sort of leaving podcasts on, on, on sour notes because of the things that I wanted to say after the fact, but, you know, this is just inevitable because there's often infinite things to say about music. Um, but to that effect, I, I think for my critique, as much as I agree, I want to strangely say the exact opposite, that, that we, for the sake of our listeners, I think could stand to be a little more succinct. I think um, 
I like our format. I love our format. I love how 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 much time we have. At the same at the same point, I think we could do a greater service and perhaps pack a greater punch if our preparedness did know bounds and we could say things in a framework that would enable our audience to gather them instantaneously perhaps not instantaneously but in a in a quicker more digestible fashion that's just it that's a tough thing in with our with our current framework because of the fact that we run so long and that we harp on points sometimes ad nauseum not that i disagree with it but i do notice the fact that when we like something oh we like it we love it we will favor that point over other things um and perhaps leave other points that were equally as important if not more important in an album out some of that is just inevitable but it, it's something that i do think we have to work on just as as people of the podium if we're on this side of the table presentation is important not just not just gushing Okay, and then the thing that you are most proud of about the podcast. The thing I am most proud of about the podcast. How about I save that because I think that will tie into my speech, and then you can go first, and I'll speak that at the end. Okay. So the thing I can think to, we can all think to improve, is more general to the website and us. Um, we used to have a lot of writers for this podcast, uh, for the website, we don't anymore. Most of them fell to the face of the earth. One had a baby. One moved and never unpacked his computer. The other, I don't even really speak to anymore. Essentially, needless to say, we don't have as many writers as we used to. We could stand to be better about our deadlines. All three of us are terrible with deadlines. We need to take each other and our own deadlines more seriously. However, we already put... Like we said earlier, eight hours in a week, and this is not our. It should be said that this is not our primary thing. I of wish. Course. I wish this was my career. I, I would put forty hours a week into something. I it is our goal I. to make this a primary. But thing. I think that also we choose to spend our time doing other things when we could be doing article writing and other stuff, which is fine. I mean, we can't spend all of our time doing this. I just think that if we set a deadline, we should meet it going forward. That's something I would like more of uh, from myself as well as you guys. Again, I'm not excluding myself from this. I'm terrible at it. Like I said earlier in the podcast, the only way I met deadlines recently was by having them from someone else that wasn't me, <laughs> which motivated me to do it and then use it for the site anyway. Well, you know what I encountered with that with that that problem is it's not so much that that it, we can't meet a deadline if we have to. It's that it's that we want the site to have direction, and yeah. we, as as we build the direction, then you know our tasks become more clear. And we are building a direction, of course, by the fact that we've released, reached the 100th episode, we pretty much know what we're about, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But, if, if I didn't say that, you know, in the beginning with our mission statement, obviously. Right. But, you know, it's a matter, especially, especially for me, who has a lot to say on, 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 on theory notes and whatnot, it's a matter of coming up with a format uh, in article form, especially now that we're so familiar with the podcast forum. The article forum is something which would, in some ways, give me more of a chance to, uh, to elaborate on those, on those ideas. And yet, on the other hand, it's something that I sort of have to organize a bit and 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 make turn into something that is regular. It's it's sort of just like this podcast. It was your idea, Matt, but it had, had the ball had to get rolling before it was on a strict pattern. Right. It's the same concept with articles. I think our articles. Uh, 
need focus and fluidity before they can be prolific. Yeah, and that's probably part of it. And again, it's not necessarily just saying we're all bad and we feel should feel yeah. bad. It's why. It's why we're right. at that point. Because we have we have a goal to be something that is different from from the standard go to music website, and that's something that that we at least feel at this stage that is special to us. Yeah. Because, as I said earlier, not a lot of people go into albums of this depth. There are album reviews, and of course, if I were to write an album review, which I have done several already, I could probably write an album review that sounded much like an album review that you could find on Pitchfork. But my theory is that, well, you can go to Pitchfork for that. Why would you read the Crash Chords Steve Nagel album review? It's that pitch that I think we we, we need to mold. Sure. And, uh, you know, and I think that we... I think having a focus on that will get us there better, and the fact that we vocalized what we think we may need will help us get there, help us meet those deadlines. Um, the thing I'm probably most proud of on this podcast is my co-host. Um, Aw, you went there. He went there. Um, in all seriousness, I couldn't do this alone. I didn't do it alone. I bitched and moaned about wanting to do it but never did you did bitch and moan but you know i don't think that this podcast and my website and any of this stuff that i've built that's now ours would have gotten anywhere without both of you well we're we're a little bit married so (laughs) what's yours is mine and what's mine i'm gonna keep it in the divorce (sighs) i believe that's what um that's what rocky said to adrian you want to get married a little bit (laughs) So I, th- I forget which one. <laughs> there are a lot of those. I don't films. think it really matters. So you know, I think that well, I still consider Crash Chords my baby because I did create it originally. We're, we're three men with a baby now. Yeah, and and I couldn't be more proud of the work that we've done, Call which is why place. I'm so adamant about sharing it everywhere and being social media horse because I'm I'm never more proud of anything else than I do. I it. There are things that I am as proud of as I am with this website and this podcast, but it's definitely in my top five of things that I'm most proud of. I, it's why I had business cards made. It's why I talk to people about it whenever I can. It's why whenever I meet a celebrity musician or anybody else, I tell them about it. I push so hard to have guests on here to spread the word. I push so hard to be on other shows on our behalf because this is important to me and you both are a huge part of why it's successful. That's so sweet. That is sweet. Yeah. Well, um, my my question will be answered uh, in just a moment. Does anybody have anything else to say? Because I believe this will be the um, thing I'd like to take us out on. First of all, I do want to say that there is no spam this week. Because... <gasps> Yay. <sighs> There's a reason. Okay. No, I'm happy. On our hundredth episode, I would like this to 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 be a a, a sort of a a, a a a driving pitchfork in the ground. Okay. A little more theory. to say that we would like to get real mail. I don't want this to to comprise spam mail because as of one hundred, I think we are at a coming of age tale right here. I don't yeah. believe this is uh this is a time for 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 um self deprecation. Yeah. And, and obviously our spam mail, as funny as it is, and I do love our spam mail, is, is a form of self-deprecation. We don't get too much real mail, and we would so love to get real mail. And um, even though I will probably return to spam mail next week, either case, I, I look forward to surprising you all with real mail. 
which you can send to admin at crashcourse.com or matt.storm at crashcourse.com. I will read, I will even read comments. Yes. You know, comment on any podcast. I, I would love, and I, I do believe this is more of a, a hopeful thing rather than just what I love about us now. In terms of my hope for the future, I would love us to be a much more interactive uh, type of podcast. I think I said that earlier on in response yeah. to, to you, John, that that's, um, that's what I really hope for from us. Not necessarily uh, guiding people in the right direction musically, but engaging in a discussion that will incite other discussions from there on, down on the line, through the chain. That's the kind of thing that I love. Just, just good old chatting. That's what we do. So, um, anybody else? Anything else to say? Um, just thank you to those who do listen every week. If you are out there, um, I was recently called out as the one and only listener of the Epic Podcast. So, Schaefer... Which is is not true. Which is not true. I download it at least once in a while. (laughs) But, so, Schaefer the Dark Lord, if you're our only listener, thank you. Thank you, Schaefer the Dark Lord. Yes, you. Um... But I want to thank the fans, and I, you know, you know where to find us on the internet. I say it week after week. Please reach out to us, contact us, follow us, like us, all of that nonsense, because we ultimately do it for us and for you, whoever's listening. Mostly for me. Well, because John's selfish and nobody loves him. No, it's because my ego is way too big. So, thank you. Ultimately, that's the last thing I have to say on my part is thank you. All right. Well, then, my answer to your question, and... um and some final words to uh, to both you and our fans uh, that I will cite here at the end of this episode and perhaps stated somewhere else on the website. First, some Crash Chords pride. I'd love, in response to your question about what my favorite thing about the podcast is, I love the sense of egalitarianism that I see in each of you employing on a weekly basis. I think a mark of professionality for us has been our growing devotion to each and every album, despite the genre and despite who picks it. And despite two years of playing critic and applying knowledge, building knowledge, I think that all three of us were collectively more pretentious in our early days, especially with our own choices, due to self-complacency and a need for self-assertion as we were gradually getting accustomed to this self-made podium of ours. But I'm happy to say that that's sort of all cooled off between us for now. Somewhat. Reason? Because we now accept that any album, fan-picked, guest-picked, or from either of us, has the capacity to enthrall or to disappoint. And that's okay. Now a word to the fans. I find that the story of our and everyone's experience with art is that we know what we like, only to be shown we know nothing at all. What we like is just a thing on the horizon, prone to rise or set as the times proceed to mold us indiscriminately. And so the humble goal for any artist is to intersect who they can, when they can. And that, too, is okay. Because artistic pursuit, though sometimes chided for its inherent idealism or narcissism, is at its core a very admirable endeavor, because it strives to provide a fundamental form of happiness, the thing that not only inspires us in our own pursuits, but that also elevates us and enlightens us to a keener understanding of what it means to be human. And the more we discuss that and give these artists their due, Even when it's not terribly thought out, the more we appreciate the chance for doling out one of the finest contributions to humanity, inspiration. And hopefully we inspire our listeners to be just as discriminate and just as high-aiming. So even here, at episode 100, with all that we've discussed, I'm happy to say we've barely scratched the surface of the inexhaustible topic that is music. 
and yet I'm continuously proud of the dent that I know we're making. On that note, music is life. And, and life, life is good! good.